Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I am joined by Sam Rethmeyer. He is a sommelier, former wine director at Republic in the LA area, and the founder and owner and content creator for Wednesday Night Wine Club, which is a wine club that he started when he left restaurants, working day in, day out at restaurants, and started this wine club. It was kind of born out of the pandemic and kind of how he was going through the cellar and they were, you know, liquidating some things and raising capital and everything for employees and all that stuff over the course of the pandemic and that kind of sparked the idea and that's how he founded the wine club and he's been kind of doing it ever since that's kind of how i first learned about sam he was the wine director at republic follow them on instagram and then when he started doing the wine club kind of saw what he was doing there it's a pretty unique concept you know a lot of people have wine clubs now it's pretty commonplace a lot of even small wine shops and stuff and a lot of them are just kind of your standard boilerplate wine clubs. Now, a lot of the stuff that we've been able to feature on this podcast, different people that own wine shops, they're doing something unique with the wine club. And Sam is another person that's doing something unique. You know, he records these videos that he puts right on the label. So you can just basically hit it with a QR code reader, you know, your camera, whatever on your phone. And it gives you the video where it's him explaining the wine, you know, and you can kind of go in depth as much as you want, really. We'll give you some backstory on it, what it's kind of going to taste like, what you should expect. And it's kind of, you can take in as much as you want or as little as you want, depending. And it's really unique. Nobody's been doing that. It's not something that I've seen or encountered before. So I definitely wanted to have him on, just talk about his career. You know, he spent a number of years kind of in the LA area, uh, doing different things there. Worked with Bobby Stuckey, who's a master sommelier. And now started this wine club and kind of is approaching it from a different angle. And that's something that we're super interested in. That's something that I'm super interested in. Not just the world of wine, but also people that are approaching things outside of the traditional box, which is definitely what Sam is doing. You can follow Sam on Instagram. His main personal account is just S. Rethmeyer. So S-R-E-T-H-M-E-I-E-R. But then you can follow him at Wednesday Night Wine Club. So it's just at Wednesday Night Wine Club, all spelled out, no abbreviations, anything like that. And you can sign up, watch all the videos. There's a YouTube channel. You can sign up for the Wine Club too as well through either the link tree through his Instagram profile or just, you know, Google search Wednesday Night Wine Club too as well. And I'll take you to the website and everything where you can sign up. You can find the YouTube channel. All the videos are up on the YouTube channel that he's done for all the wines too as well. So if you're just trying to do some research on some wines and not sure where to start, what to get, something that's kind of priced and affordable, you know, he's kind of got you covered there too as well with a bunch of the videos that he's done, kind of recommendations too as well. You can follow us on Instagram at Spoon Mob. We're on all the other social medias, but again, mainly use Instagram. We drop stuff on TikTok the night before an episode comes out just as a little preview thing. So you can follow us there too as well. You can check out our YouTube channel. All the episodes make their way over there. It's just at Spoon Mob on YouTube and we have all the episodes there or on any podcast platform. You can follow or subscribe to the podcast. All the new episodes drop straight in your feed. Usually release episodes 1 a.m. Thursdays, East Coast time. Sometimes we run into some delays depending on how lengthy the episode is or if there was a lot of editing for some reason or uh, just running behind because of life being busy. So sometimes they will drop later that morning, like at the 8 a.m., 9 a.m. range, uh, worst case scenario. But 
they always drop Thursday mornings. We usually target 1 a.m. for the third shifters, but sometimes, like I said, we just hit some delays or just get kind of backlogged with some stuff and it winds up dropping a few hours later. Not a big deal, but when you're subscribed or following our podcast on whatever platform that you use, uh, the episode will just drop straight in your feed. You can go to the settings like an Apple podcast and do auto downloads or not, or you can manually download it if you're on the go or whatever. Um, that's kind of up to you and your personal preference there. I think it kind of defaults into the auto download setting. You have to turn that off, but that's all point of personal preference, but you can also check out our website, spoonmob.com. We have profiles, contact information for everybody that's been on the podcast, links to all the episodes. There's a master page that'll get you right to whatever episode that you're looking for. It's easier to scroll than going through one of the apps where you have to keep loading as further and further you go down, the farther back that you go. You know, we've been doing this for three years. We're coming up on 150 episodes, 150 people that have been on. A good chunk of those are first-time guests. We've had some repeat guests on too as well. But yeah, we're getting close to kind of a, the 150 mark. So we're super excited as we get closer and closer to wrap out the end of the year too as well. With some more upcoming great guests. But that's kind of it for updates for this week. So without any further delay, here's my conversation with sommelier Sam Rethmeyer, who's the owner, founder, content creator, uh, wine aficionado, wine nerd, all that stuff for Wednesday Night Wine Club, which is out in Los Angeles, California. Cool. Well, thanks again for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of your day there uh, to jump on here and talk some wine and stuff. So I first kind of learned about you mainly when you kind of popped up over at Republic as the wine director, but then you started your own wine club and that's got a pretty unique concept. It's pretty interesting a lot to be said about different wine clubs and everything. And you're kind of approaching it from a different way. So I want to get into that with your Wednesday night wine club and everything. But I always like to start at the beginning with everybody with you. You know, how did you kind of first get started with wine? Cause I was doing a bunch of research. I mean, you, you were working in restaurants, but it wasn't until you wound up in Colorado that I think you really got interested in wine, right? I had been in the restaurant industry largely due to its easy income and you're walking with cash tips the first restaurant that I was at was, or is a place called Old Spaghetti Factory, and that was in downtown Fullerton. And I also immediately grew to love the restaurant industry because I became friends with the bartenders. And if I walked with the bartenders after a shift at 18 years old, wearing the uniform, I could get into the bar in the same parking lot across the street. And so while all my friends are going to house parties and whatever, I'm an 18 year old kid and, you know, hanging out in bars and, and it felt I was suddenly included in this very adult world where it felt like all my idiot friends, you know, are, are doing the same stuff they were doing in high school. So I started there and it was in Colorado. Um, I was married at the time and, and we ended up uh, finding out we were pregnant with our first. And so I called my dad and said, well, what do I do now? And he said, well, the only thing that you've ever really done is restaurants. And so I think you should find the best restaurant that there is, annoy them into hiring you. So what that ended up becoming was, and he was actually very instrumental in helping me get that job. His stance was, well, you didn't go to college. I didn't have to pay for that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help contribute uh, to your career and to, to jumpstart it. I want to say it started in probably... Had it been like in a, in January ish, I started going into Frosca every Monday. Every Monday, I'd walk in. I'd walk up to the host, Paige is her name, and I would say, "Has anyone quit? Did anyone get fired? Did anyone die?" All right, I'll see you next week. 
And, and every time that I'd walk in, she would treat me. This was so distinct because it was very different to me at the time. Every time I walked in, she'd treat me like I was a guest. Hi, Sam. How are you? Never with the assumption that I was coming in to ask for a job. She just always treated me like I was coming in to get a gift card or make a reservation, whatever it was. So that was pretty remarkable. And after about three months of that, my dad came into town and we made a reservation. We were seated at what I learned later was the worst table in the restaurant. And of course, when you build a restaurant, you never anticipate or plan on that worst table, but you start to see like everyone hates sitting there for whatever reason. My dad dropped $1,400 on just the two of us. And this is 14, 15 years ago. So that was a sizable amount of money, right? And it was all with with uh, wine, two bottles of wine. So he said, well, hey, can we make a reservation for tomorrow night? And we'd love to uh, bring Sam's wife. The next night, we're at the best table in the restaurant. And my dad drops $1,200 that night. And just he goes, look, this is just going to help you get noticed. And then as we're leaving, he said, oh, this is perfect. Okay, Bobby's sitting down with clearly that's his wife. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to get up. I'm going to go to Bobby and start telling him how amazing this whole meal was. What a great time we had. You go around him and go to his wife and tell his wife how much you want a job here and how much you want to be exactly like Bobby Stuckey. And so that's what we did. And two days later, I finally got the call back in to come in, sit down, and kind of the rest is history. With that three months before your dad comes into town, you're going in there every Monday. Did you go anywhere else or was it just this one place that was the only place on the list for you? Yeah, it was the only place on the list. It was really the only restaurant that stood out. Consider, again, 15, 20 years ago in Colorado, I mean, the food scene wasn't really what it is today. It felt a lot like LA was when I was growing up as a kid. You know, there were three restaurants that were really good and the rest of LA was like, eh, whatever. I mean, that was just kind of the the mentality. I found out later in that process, right? So I just see the restaurant, that's the most popular, or that's the, the most famous restaurant, right? In the state, well, let's go there. Happens to be in Boulder. I live in Boulder. How convenient is that? And then I kind of found out later that he was a master sommelier. So I had to do research on what that was. I just came into a world that I had no idea what I was doing. And it's funny because when I sat down and interviewed with Bobby, he was like, you don't want to do this. I go, what do you mean I don't want to do that? I've been coming in here for three months. Like, of course I want to do this. And he said, no, you don't. Sammy, you just don't realize how hard this is. Now you're about to become a dad, right? I said, yeah. And he, he yelled over to a server. And I just, I have to do it the way that he did. He goes, Jerry, guy's name is not Jerry. It's Jeremy. But he calls him Jerry because he's older. So it's a play on geriatric, right? So we just would, and everyone could like, Jerry, he'd get so angry. He goes, Jerry, how much does your wife hate you? And he's vacuuming. He looks up and goes, a lot. And then just goes back to vacuuming. <laughs> and, I, you know, so I didn't realize, okay, how does that, play? no, you know what? I want to be like you. I want to be, I want to be who you are. And he said, okay, you know, I warned you. And for the three years that I worked for him would arguably be the three hardest years of my entire life. I go from being a, a new husband to a father. I am working in a restaurant that is easily eight to 10 hours a day, every day that I work. I have a owner who isn't a chef owner pushing the restaurant. They were co-owners, Bobby Stuckey and Lachlan McKinnon Patterson. That was a novelty back then that you would have a front of the house guy that was also an owner that was pushing this restaurant to this level of perfection that 
we'll never get there, but we never stop. But I didn't understand that. I was 25 years old. I thought I was hot shit because I'm a shithead 25-year-old, you know, that really feels like he's he's going to improve upon the experience for guests at Frosca. The hubris. Oh, my God. You know, I'm dealing with all this on my personal life, suddenly going from six to eight-hour shifts to eight to ten. And Bobby had this thing where you needed to not only know about the food, the cuisine of that region, which is a freely Venezia Giulia, which at the time no one had ever heard of before. It was one of the only regions in Italy that when Bobby would take the staff to do these education trips, the joke was that they were the only American tourists visiting at the time. So an entire region, no one's ever heard of before. You have to not only know about that, but you have to be so on top of what's actually happening in Friuli that guests need to assume that you've been there several times, even if you haven't. So the research, the the digging into the history, Bobby would, would host a wine class 50 weeks out of the year. And these were not mandatory, but oh my God, if you didn't hear about it for weeks afterwards that you didn't go. What was amazing, again, I started to realize it probably the last year that I was there, but how truly remarkable what they were doing was because he would open somewhere between twelve to $20,000 in wine just for the staff to try, just purely from an education standpoint. And nothing about it too was meant to sell the wine because he had a sommelier team. And the sommelier team would be so angry with you if you sold that bottle of wine because you didn't understand allocations and what was there and we don't want to do a reprint and you know all of that. It was just for our, our own edification and then for the betterment of the restaurant because when someone came in and said, oh my God, I love Amarone, I love Cintarelli, we'd had Cintarelli and we had a reference point to then talk about it. We knew the area that it was coming from, all this. This is a job. I am so combative with Bobby and the first time that I have this, my dad was this great man, right? He was this great influence on my life, but I'd never had anyone outside of just my dad telling me what to do. And so suddenly I have this super strong male presence in my life and I am such a shithead that I train seven other people to do my job and then move on past me. Bobby just kept me in the lowest position in that restaurant, which ironically at the time was an expediter, which for anyone that's ever worked in a restaurant, an expediter is probably the most important position of making sure that that the whole shit doesn't sink. So I was there for seven months because Bobby would tell me to do something and I would turn around and be like, I don't think that's what we should do. <laughs> like, what's wrong with me that I have a master sommelier who has won a James Beard Award for Outstanding Wine Program for Thomas Keller, worked for Thomas Keller, has now been nominated again for a James Beard Award. And here I am, a 25-year-old kid, doesn't know anything. And I'm telling him what I think we should do different. And he was relentless in not letting me get away with anything. I mean, he would chase me down. He would like hunt for me. It just, it was this incredibly stressful time because I felt really like I was suddenly going from being a kid into an adult in this high stakes environment with a man that, yeah, just he, he demanded perfection. And that was the only thing that he would allow. Up to that point, did you know anything about wine? Like, I mean, you grew up in California, obviously, you know, the LA area, but did you have any knowledge of wine before you wound up there? My 
parents have these friends that are, uh, you know, a generation older from them, kind of mentor, uh, definitely a mentor for my dad. And he found out one year that my parents were celebrating their anniversary, but funds were kind of tight. So they weren't going anywhere. His name's David Denunzio. David invites him and his wife, Robin, over to the house and, and says, look, we'll pick up some steaks. We'll pick up some filet. You just grill it for us, but we want your anniversary to be really great. And when he gets there, he happens to have a bottle of Opus One from 1982 brought them for their, their anniversary. And I'm 15, 15 and a half years old, come strolling out. He And David says, hey, Sam, do you want to try this? I'd never tried wine before. And my first sip of wine is 82 Opus One. And it, floor, I mean, I'm like, this is insane, right? I walk away, but I have no context for how rare that is, how expensive that is, how unique that is, nothing. I just assume, oh, that's how wine tastes. So I was incredibly disappointed as I kept trying wine of how like, this is all garbage. Because most of the wine at the time that anyone in my sphere was drinking was from Trader Joe's. It was La Crema, Chardonnay, you know, all of these oak bombed out. And, you know, and so you just kind of think, oh, that's wine. Yeah, I dig wine. I dig white wine. I like red wine, right? But there, there was nothing more to it than that. And I start at Frosca and find out that they're doing a wine class. Of course, you start there. No one tells you that. You just have to figure it out for yourself. So I, I walk in. I'm like, what? The wine class? Can I sit down for this? Because I'm just an expediter. They're like, yeah, absolutely. Every employee here should come to these things because you're an idiot if you miss them. So I sit down and they are tasting a Sangiovese. It's, uh, I want to say that it was Rosso de Montalcino or Brunello de Montalcino. It was one of those two. I'm smelling and listening, and, and somebody at one point says, oh, yeah, and you get that tomato leaf quality. And I thought, green in a red wine? I've never heard that before. That's, that's so weird to me that you would get green in a red wine, that, and I could not smell it. And it was three months later, I think, that I had, there was another uh, Sangiovese-based wine, and I picked it up and was like, you guys, I smell the tomato leaf, you know, and, but you just... You had to learn on the job and you you would come in assuming that you knew wine. And there was Bobby Stuckey, arguably, I think one of the greatest master sommeliers to come out of that generation, if not ever, that was working the floor with us five to six nights a week would orchestrate all these things. And, and look, that man is so wired into being a restaurateur that he would come back from the, the Italy trips where he was blending wines for his wine label. He would land at 7 p.m., 7.30 p.m. in Denver after having been in Italy for four days, drive home, shower, suit up, and finish out the shift on the floor, stay until midnight, 1 a.m., be back in at 10.30 in the morning the following day and keep working throughout the week. Who does that? Who doesn't go, you know what, we just had that big work trip in Italy. I'm, I want to go home. I want to hang out with my wife. I want to take a couple of days to recover from jet lag, whatever. No, Bobby was back in that night and would crush it, would be one of the most hospitable people. I mean, it, it was incredible to be a part of that and, and incredible to get to work with someone that's at that time just had the one restaurant and was there every day and wasn't pulled in all these different directions. Like you do, the more famous you get as a restaurateur. Everything that I learned was because of that restaurant. The base of my wine knowledge was all Italian, which I've later found out was is one of the hardest regions to study for because every appellation has its own name for a grape variety. And, and there are rules, but then there's like the rules don't matter and is crazy. 
So that part was was pretty amazing too to just get Italian first because then when I shifted into French, it was piece of cake. Do you think somebody could land a job the way you did still? So like you get a lot of people that they talk about, you know, when they first got into restaurants, they just showed up or they kept dropping off resumes at the same place over and over again. And eventually somebody was like, this guy's been here like every day for a month. Like, let's just see what he's got. Is that still an applicable method to get into restaurants these days? Or has it completely shifted and that just no longer is the case? Do you think? I think it absolutely is. And I think that the, the big stumbling block for people now is that they are willing to come into that restaurant and do whatever it takes to get the position that they want. Whereas I came in to Frosca and I just wanted a job. I'll do anything. I just know that you're the best restaurant and this is going to jumpstart my career or, or help me make more money. This is certainly the financing restaurant. I'll probably make more money than I would but because everything else felt dead end. And I'm working with men and women in their 40s and 50s that this is all they've ever done and they'll just continue to do it and they still go out and get shitty after work and wake up the next morning hungover and work brunch. You know, it's just, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be in that restaurant world because there's a shelf life there and you don't retire. So when I came in, I just, whatever, whatever I can do, I'll do it. So when I was at Republique, uh, you know, I remember one of the best sommeliers that I worked with, one of my favorites, Chris, he came in and said, you took care of me last night for my wife and I's anniversary. And I was like, oh yeah, man, I remember you. And he goes, I want to come and work for you. Uh, I obviously want to be on the wine team. That would be my goal, but I will come in here and do whatever it takes just to work here and work with you. And he was a server. We hired him as a server. He worked for six months, did not complain a single time, studied, showed up to every wine class, came in with intelligent, well-thought-out questions that he couldn't have read from a book. That was a big thing at Frosca that I was 100% guilty of is that I would ask questions to seem like I was paying attention, but they were so like base level questions that Bobby would be like, get the fuck out of here. You know that you can read, like you're, you're, you are taking time away from me doing something very important to answer such a stupid basic question. I'm saying it like that because it's how it felt to me. And it also was helpful because it, kind of made me snap to attention, right? Like, I don't think everyone does that, nor does everyone need that. As a 25-year-old man, I needed someone to be like, stop being an idiot. It just, it helped me. And and so, but, but you know, Chris coming in and saying that, I thought, all right, well, let's hire you and put you in a position that you don't want. And we'll see how long you last. And he was one of the best employees. He was a phenomenal server. The service team was really bummed to lose him when I finally had an opening on the sommelier side. I do totally think that it's it's doable. It's just that your the expectation needs to be lowered to, I just want to work here and work my way up. We very often do not get to come in and get the the premium, the premium job, the, the dream job. You, you have to work for it. So what brought you back to LA? Because like 2013, you wind up going back to LA. What took you back? We had had our second child. Turns out being away from family is really hard when you're raising kids. I had hit a point in my shitheadedness with Bobby that I realized I'm always going to be seen as this 25-year-old kid. And there's no way that I'm, I'm not going to move up into other positions either because no one leaves this job. There are so many people ahead of me that are, are guaranteed those positions, like being on the sommelier team, right? And... I think I just need to to get out there and and go somewhere else. Like having this 
resume builder of Frosca at my back go somewhere else because I probably will get promoted into or, or get a higher position, right? But the issue is when you're at arguably the best restaurant in the state by like a large margin, if you leave and stay in the state, you're you're downgrading yourself. You're demoting yourself into a lesser restaurant. And it's not to say that there were anything wrong with those restaurants. It's not it's not a dig on them. They just weren't doing the style of service and the that level that Frosca was. And so I convinced uh, my wife to we should come back to, to LA and we should we should give it a shot here. We tried to figure out where we were gonna go. We eventually landed in Long Beach because I refused to be landlocked again in LA. Like I, I haven't been by the ocean in forever. I need to be near a beach. And I was I got a job um, at a restaurant called Kispaka. And this was Nancy Silverton's kind of meat temple restaurant, super tiny. At the time, I, I want to say that there were less than 20 tables and maybe six counter seats and open fire grilling. Nothing was ever put in a microwave. The smallest steak you could get was like 55 ounces. It was this wild place. And it was like, this is an it restaurant. I had never been in one of those before. I'd never had that experience, but where you were taking care of celebrities all the time. It was the hardest reservation to get in L.A., and so that was like super cool. And you're working with Nancy Silverton and David Rossoff was the managing director, partner. And he's he was phenomenal. It was a pretty special time. Chad Colby was the chef there. And you just you were you were part of something that was buzzy. You could you could feel the energy when you walked in the room. So it really, you know, it's funny because I guess another way to answer your question is that I myself was not highly motivated to do these things to advance my career. It was the product of starting a family that made me go, oh, I got to grow up. I got to, I got to do something else. And I got to do now. I'm, I'm not just worried about me because if I'm just worried about me, just give me enough money to make rent and we can go out to the bars afterwards and hang out and have a good time. Right. Like I want low stress in my life. You have a family. It pushes you to do things that you never thought you could or, or had never anticipated. And it's funny because most people I know got into wine became wine directors, whatever in their career, then they get married and start having kids. I started with kids and then it, my trajectory was a little opposite, if you will, in that regard. But uh, yeah, it was, it was having my, my son that, that pushed us to, to LA. And when you go to that restaurant, you had the intention of being on the floor, right? At that point, like you knew, you know, you were already doing all the small A stuff, like with Bobby and everything, learning knowledge. But then when you get to this other restaurant, you wanted to be on the floor doing wine, right? When I left working for Bobby and, and left Frosca, I was just a server and the backup bartender. Again, I just thought, I just need a job. Whatever I end up doing, I, that sounds great. And Kies Baca connected to Osteria Moza. Moza's got a pretty good wine list. I know I'm going to be in good hands, right? I know I'm going to be around the kind of people that I want to be around. I'm going to work for the type of people that I want to work for. I kind of fell into that role because for three years, I'd been trained to become a sommelier without realizing it. I was going to a wine class. But they sat us down and said, you know, what's your favorite wine on the, the wine list? And this was this was the homework for the, the front of house staff. And they got to me and I can't remember the name of the producer now off the top of my head, but, but it was a rosé and it was intentionally made, right? Versus being bled off, the juice being bled off. And so I talked about you know, the differences between the two and then the complexity in this and why I liked it, whatever. And I immediately got pulled out <laughs> to the back alleyway and offered, hey, do you want to be the, do you want to be the backup floor song? Which there was unique too. You were a floor song and you ran 
the counter seating. So you could actually be taking care of six people and have to open five bottles of wine for five different tables. So that was that was a pretty interesting learning curve. And yeah, just that that uh, was the start of me being of actually being on the floor. But it I think, you know, Stucky was so instrumental in my approach to hospitality was radically different than anybody else because of Bobby. So Bobby doesn't lead with I'm a master sommelier. He leads with I'm I'm a busboy. On the surface, that can sound kind of cheesy, right? Because it it sounds like you're just, you know, I'm really great, but I'm not going to admit it. And and that was couldn't be further from the truth. Bobby Bobby became a master sommelier because it would help him take better care of his guests. Being a sommelier in his restaurant was no more important than being a backwaiter. The backwaiters needed to know all the same information that the sommeliers needed to know. Sommeliers obviously lean a little bit way more into wine, but there was this huge entry-level knowledge that you needed to have and everyone had to have it. You know, Bobby said one thing to us one time, we were we were getting out early and we were all very excited because that never happened at Frosca. But oh my gosh, we might be out of here an hour and a half to two hours earlier than we normally do. Bobby let a guest, a regular, come in and sit down 10 minutes after we closed because his flight had been delayed. And I cannot tell you the degree of irritation, frustration for the entire staff. Like everyone hates Bobby right now. He noticed everyone moping and being bummed. And, and I mean, we were so close because it was so dead that the kitchen was walking out the door. And they, Bobby pulled them back in. They had to turn everything back on, start all over again to wait for this two top to come in that showed up 10 minutes after we closed. And Bobby later chastised all of us. And he said, look, we are in the business of hospitality. And we take care of every guest until they're done. And so no one leaves fucking early. No one gets out here. We are not on our schedule. We are taking care of guests. I don't ever want to hear about any of you ever wanting to leave early again, because there is no early. We're done when we're done. And that totally changed my life. Like Bobby's leading by being empathetic. We have to be empathetic with our guests. We we just, you know what, if, if I can let go of this idea that I matter more than the job that I'm supposed to do. And I can lower my expectations. I just get way more zend out. And from then on, I just thought, you know what? I'm working at the restaurant. And I'll do it until I'm done. I'm going to go get a job at Kisbaka and I'm going to do whatever the job is that they give me and be happy that I have the job and just work my butt off. And if I get noticed for something, great. That's not the point. Point is I clock in, I set up my station and I take care of everyone that walks through that door. And if I can do that in in uh, the role of a sommelier, or if I can do that in the role of an expediter, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it to the greatest degree that I can execute. And hopefully today, I'm at least 1% better than I was yesterday. So from Kisbaka, you wind up getting a role as a general manager at uh, Le Marchand. How did that happen? Was that something that you wanted to do? Like you wanted to move into kind of a management role? or I didn't want to do that because... Being a manager is just, it's still, it's so hard. It, I didn't want it. I loved being in wine. So what happened is Le Marchand, the backstory there, Eric Railsback, Brian McClintock, two good friends up from San Francisco, come down to Santa Barbara and open up this wine bar. And the wine bar concept is very similar to what you encounter in Paris. Like any wine bar that you walk into, you can buy any bottle of wine to take with you. They serve small snacks. And it's also like a retail store. So it was this mashup of a bunch of different concepts. Railsback had heard through the grapevine that my wife at the time was very unhappy living in Long Beach because I had pulled her from Boulder, Colorado to Long Beach. Very stark contrast in, in locations. And 
for some reason at the time she said, you know, the only place I could see myself still being in California is Santa Barbara. I'm like, have you ever been to Santa Barbara? And she said, no, but I just feel like that's the place that, that is the going to be the only thing I can do. Otherwise, taking the kids and I'm leaving. So I am lamenting this to a friend of mine. I don't know what I'm going to do. It gets back to Eric and Eric says, hey, do you want a job? You come work up at Le Marchand. I will help you become a amazing floor song wine director. I got this wild opportunity to run this wine bar. It felt like what I tasted in the, in the first six months that I was there was more benchmark producers from France than I had ever had at Frosca in three years with the Master Sommelier uh, owner. Klopp, Terry Allemand. I got to the point and I, I just, it sounds absurd, but where it was like, oh man, we not do Donderville tonight. Like, can we open a different producer? I'm kind of bored with Donderville. Like we drank that much Donderville that we're all like, oh, I mean, yeah, okay, fine, we'll do it. When you start to blind, you're blinding like Clos de Duke and getting the vintage right. Like, you know that you're drinking a lot of Burgundy. We got tired of O2 Salon. Like, can we just open something different? It was just, it was wild. And so it was kind of this right place at the right time. And then Eric left. Brian was a master sommelier that his fame was because of the Psalm documentary. But Brian was never a floor guy. Brian was really creative and very funny, but he had never worked the floor as a sommelier, which was wild to me because you go from master sommelier Bobby Stuckey to master sommelier Brian McClintock, and they're not the same thing. They have the same knowledge, but they're not the same thing. That was a very wild realization to me. To his credit, Brian just started doing his own thing. He was not going to be defined by this as having to do A, B, and C, because that's just what you do, right? He had his own path. So once Eric left, it changed. And then they wouldn't give Brian Eric's partnership share in Le Marchand. And so Brian was like, well, screw you guys. I'm, I'm doing my own thing, which he's Viticol's very successful wine club. So then for the next two years, I got to watch a restaurant group struggle to make a concept work that just wasn't working. And that was pretty fascinating. I don't have anything negative to say about them because what I've come to realize is sometimes you just don't realize what's going on when you're in it. When you're in the middle of shit, everything just looks like shit and you it's very hard to be detached, right? And, and view it analytically. All these decisions were being made very emotionally. We would decide one day to do something and two days later completely change it. We would do a happy hour and then a week later we'd abandon it. You know, all like, like oh my God. That was fascinating to see and, and watch this implosion while still, mind you, drinking some of the greatest wine ever made on earth. Every winemaker would stop by. Everyone would, people would come up from LA. They'd come down from San Francisco. It just, it was this remarkable right time, right place. And I got to learn how to manage, but I, I later realized I, I didn't. They didn't have anyone that could mentor me. There was no one there to really train. It was just, you figure it out, which was, <laughs> was very Eric Rails back. My first shift there was, I was solo. He just left because he had to go to France. And the first person to walk in is a guest I still uh, would take care of at Republique. And he bought $1,500 in retail, in wine from France. And at the time, all I knew was Italy. I'm like 10 days into my tenure at Le Marchand, just left completely alone. And I had to, you know, I had to, sink or swim. Yeah, that lasted for about two and a half years. Then I kind of retreated into a 
a restaurant up in Ojai to kind of lick my wounds and, and figure out what the next steps were going to be. I wanted to kind of be able to make some more mistakes and grow up a little bit more outside of any kind of limelight so that I could fuck it up and no one would remember. Was that a uh, Nokiola? Uh, Nokiola, yeah. Yeah, it's a great concept, super fun. The food was food was really good. Food was actually pretty remarkable. But it was, you know, off the beaten path. I will say this, quickly became known as the best restaurant in Ojai because Ojai's, it was really good. The bar was very low. Because of that, all the celebrities would come in there. I took care of Robert Plant twice in that restaurant. Like, it was very cool. We had some very cool people that came through there. But, it, you know, the owner was also the chef and the maitre d' and, the, you know, he kind of did it all. Classic Italian uh, style restaurant. And yeah, it was just a, it was a period to kind of figure out what I had learned from Le Marchand to, to lick my wounds, just to kind of center out and zen out. And then uh, Republique happened. So with Nochiola, when you take over, because you're like the wine director there, did you do anything with the wine program or was it like you were just chilling out? So you're like, yeah, it's established. I'll tweak it here or there. Or did you get really into it? Or I would try to get really into it. And, you know, but it's just, it's that area. No one was drinking wine like that. You know, it's, um, it's a neighborhood restaurant. You do have some wealthy people that come in. It felt like at the time everyone wanted big, bold, super Tuscan, Napa Cab, Amarone. And I'm trying to, you know, wax poetically about Piedmont and, and Tuscany. And it wasn't a wine destination. It wasn't somewhere that you went and did that. And I was okay with that. I'll be here. I'll tweak things if I, if I feel that they need them. But I just wanted a break. You know, I, I wanted to, to not have, I wanted to not be frustrated. I wanted not to be annoyed. I wanted to just, yeah, relax. So after this, isn't there a little stint where you're doing some wine selling for Veritas Imports in there? Uh, I was also working for Veritas part-time, um, kind of like uh, sell when you can, sell what you can. If anyone out there is listening and they're on the sales side and they're just starting out, the greatest thing I figured out was every single buyer would see me if I brought champagne. I'd walk in and go, hey, I'm Sam. I work for this importer. I don't know if your, your wine director has time to meet with me. They don't. Oh, well, let them know I had some champagne in the bag. And I swear, like five minutes later, everyone would walk out. Hey, nice to meet you. How are you? You have champagne in there? And that's how I got my foot in the door every time. And that was fun. You know, I, I enjoyed it. And it was really helpful. It was, I loved working for that company. I still love that company. At that point, again, it was like, I just need to do whatever it takes to support my family. That's just what I'm going to do. And if it means... I got to drive around and sell wine up until five o'clock, suit up, walk into a restaurant and do home at 10. That's, that's what it takes. That's what I'm going to do. Do you think more people who wind up in your situation, you know, wine directors and whatnot, that they should spend a little bit of time doing wine sales just to get that opposite perspective? Or is it not really worth it from a knowledge capacity standpoint? Or what's your take on that? Because there's something to be said for knowing, like like you're saying, like you're going into these restaurants, you're trying to meet with wine directors. They're all like, no, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy. But going through that has to change your perspective as being a wine director. And when you get a rep that comes in that maybe you've never spoken with before, you go, am I that busy? Yeah, I think that you start to have compassion a little bit more. And I mean, that that's never a bad thing. And I don't think that you necessarily need to do the job just to not be a dickhead to people when they walk into your restaurant, like just be nice. That'll get you a lot further. My issue was I'm, I'm, I'm working for an importer that is French 
largely French, a little bit of Italian, a little bit of Californian. And I'm selling in an area where everyone is traveling to wine country to drink local wines. No one wants to drink French. All the wine directors want to drink French. And I actually learned too, if you're in a market where you are selling wine, sell to winemakers because winemakers have all the licensing to buy from you wholesale. Greatest like light bulb moment of my life was, uh, and they actually drink it. They're not a retail shop that sits on it or a restaurant that has it languish on their list for forever because it's Santa Barbara and everyone just wants to drink Santa Barbara wines. No, wine winemakers will drink that shit and then order more from you. So how did you eventually wind up at Republic? I realized that I wasn't happy with what I was doing. Oh, I kind of had fizzled out for me and I just needed to find something else. And my my ex-wife now, but my wife at the time says well, what would you want to do? Like perfect, like dream job. And I said, run the wine program at Ray Public, but that's never going to happen. And three months later, I got the job. They had had uh, their opening wine director that had come and gone and started his own consulting gig. And then they ended up uh, losing his kind of number two that they promoted into the, the wine director position and had this huge open casting basically of we're, we're going to open this up to anybody, submit your resume. And so... I mean, everybody applied for that job. And guys that had 10 years more experience than I did working in fine dining restaurants. I mean, it was it was embarrassing the amount of people that came through there. When I think about the fact that I actually got that job, I, that was remarkable. And they really took a, they took a huge risk. I had worked in restaurants and I had managed this little wine bar, but I had never done anything to the degree that I was going to do at Republic. I knew that I had wanted to work with the chefs, Walter and Marge, like they, their foods, you know, the best in LA. And then I sat down and interviewed with the general manager. Her name is uh, Melissa Kojakian. I sat down wanting to work with Walter and Marge and I left needing to work with her because Melissa was the closest embodiment of what I had experienced with Bobby Stuckey. And I knew this is this is a person who I, I need to learn from. I need to be around her. I need to be in her orbit. I will do whatever it takes to continue to get to learn from her. And sure enough, when I got the job for the first year that I was there, she pulled me in to do all of the um, coaching sessions. Every staff coaching thing for a year and we would do it after service and would not get home until two or three in the morning. And mind you, the entire time that this happens, I live in Ventura. I'm commuting from Ventura down into LA at five days a week. It's about a three and a half hour round trip drive that I'm making every day because this job means that much to me that it was totally worth it. And Melissa... Melissa taught me how to be a manager, how to be a GM, really. I mean, she was she was honestly one of the the greatest, most powerful restaurant individuals I've ever had the opportunity to work with. It the way that she was able to communicate to the staff was remarkable. And you know, Bobby Bobby's very different now too, right? Cuz cuz everyone has growth. At the time that I worked for Bobby, Bobby was very focused on the front of the house and sometimes it didn't feel like there was a lot of empathy for the people that worked for him. 
and that's changed. I've, I've hung out with Bobby a couple of times. I've worked the floor with Bobby a couple of times at Frosca and that's wildly different. But at the time that was just the norm. We take care of the guests, but you didn't always feel like as a, as an employee, you were taken care of. Uh, suddenly I start working for Melissa and I, I'm seeing this radical care to what the staff is doing and, and, and how we, how we handle the staff, right? How we work the staff through problems that they have and, and all of that. So that coupled with Walter and Marge and basically them eventually getting to the point where I had carte blanche. As long as your costs are in line and your numbers are good, you do whatever you want. I had an an old school chef like Walter Mansky look at me one day and say, look, Sam, if the wine list is going to be the best wine list in the world, if it requires us increasing our inventory to a million dollars, do it. Just don't buy stupid stuff. But if we need to have a million dollar wine list, you can have a million dollar wine list. No one fucking says that anymore, especially in LA. It was all about like these lean lists or small lists or natural wine lists or whatever. But here's a guy that's just spend the money. I don't, you know, if, if it's good for the restaurant, do it. What? And then he was one of the most prolific chefs I've ever worked for. Walter Mansky does not need to be on the floor. He does not need to be uh, behind the line. Like that man has worked for so long for so many amazing chefs and can command the kind of talent that would come through there. And he loved it. When I started 2017, I have no idea what I'm doing. I just know that I'm thrilled to be in this place. And I never got screamed at for not knowing what I was doing. It was always like, well, let's help you know what you do. I only ever saw Walter Mansky get mad four times. Four times for four years that I worked there. I only saw him lose his cool four times. That man was just zenned out and cool. And he's the chef. Like he's the one person that you expect to get screamed at all the time, right? And nothing. He'd be working, whatever, and and someone would come in and say, Chef, this eight top just sat down and they'd like for you to do a menu for him. Can we can we do a, a special menu? Walter Mansky would riff a menu on the fly, dishes that aren't on the menu, and cook everything personally himself. What chef does that? What chef at his level will drop everything that he's doing and personally craft this meal rather than just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell the CDC to do it. CDC will take care of it and just, you know, and you just slap his name on it. And then I would get to do wine pairings and on the fly wine pairings or on the fly guests just came in. They have 12 bottles of porkage. Well, what are the wines? And we build a menu based on the wines and how I was going to pour the wines. And then Jeff would come in and, and, and even too, sometimes when we were talking menus, I'd taste something and be like, chef, this one ingredient that you added in is going to really mess with these wines. And he would change the recipe. What chef has the humility to change his own recipe to make sure it fit better with the wine? Because that's the best thing for the guest. It was, in, it was insane to get to have that opportunity. Between the, the administrative side of not only what the wine director did, but of what a restaurateur does, I had to sit in on every P&L meeting that we ever had. Their P&Ls were like 18 to 19 pages long. We went through everything. And then here's what our EBITDA is, which is what our profits are before we start paying back investors. And, you know, so you just, we saw everything. Walter and Marge were always there. They worked six, seven days a week and at least six hours a day, every day. They moved into a house that's behind the alleyway of Republic so they could be closer to the restaurant. They worked harder than anybody else. And that was really interesting to see too. Like, again, just like Bobby Stuckey. 
here you have these two people that would work and would fly back in from the Philippines doing their projects over there. And Walter would come in and hang out on the floor for like three to four hours before he'd go to bed. And he'd be back in at 6, 7 a.m. the next day to just keep working. It was insane. And that was the hard, that was one of the hardest jobs I've ever had in the sense of I took it over. There was no printed wine list. None of the wines were in the POS system. None, the seller wasn't mapped out. So when I took over, we had $550,000 in inventory and no one knew where anything was. The previous wine directors did kind of had it all squirreled away in their heads. Wine still in boxes. You didn't know what anything was. It was chaos. It took me a year of working 60 plus hours a week, driving like that, coming home and working on my computer until I'd fall asleep for me to get that program kind of where it currently sits. So to have a wine list was like, okay, I'll start doing this wine list. But wait, nothing makes sense if it's not in the POS system. Wait, that doesn't make sense if we don't know where anything is. Okay, okay, I guess we got to map out the seller first. And then we map that out and that takes three months because we don't have the money to just have two people map out the seller. But So I'm using Psalms when we have downtime or scheduling them in an hour early and figuring, you know what, I'll send them home early and I'll just finish closing Psalm section so we can just get this thing mapped out. And we get it mapped out and I finally get all the wines in the POS system and I finally get the wine list printed. And the first guest I give it to keeps ordering wines that we don't have in house. And then I'm like, oh, right, because we have an offsite storage and I didn't even account for what's offsite. Fuck shit. Okay. Now I got to go back and completely redo the wine list because I got to figure out now we got to go do inventory offsite and figure out where all that shit is. Right. So it just, it was, it was nonstop, but it was the most fun I've ever had. Does that make it easier for you to put like your stamp on kind of the wine program? Like people take over an existing wine program, right? Like everybody tries to be as reserved as possible. They don't want to mess with anything too, too much, but you do want to have your influence eventually make its way into the program, whatever that is. So does that situation that you encounter make it a little bit easier because nobody really knows where anything is? So you can kind of go through it all and then kind of shift how you want it to kind of be? I actually think that that's, that's a huge problem with the wine community, the sommelier community in general, is that we tend to think of, of wine programs as ours. Like I, I took over the Republic wine program and it's my wine program. It's not. It's the restaurant's wine program. That wine pr- program always belongs to Republic and it will never change. Whoever gets to shepherd it through, that will. If it's the restaurant's wine program, then what's the number one thing that the, the restaurant needs? The restaurant needs to make money. We want to romanticize what running a wine program is. No, your whole job is to make money. If you're not making money for the restaurant, then they're going to fire you and find somebody else. When we make money, though, well, how do we make money? We take care of our guests. We take care of people. We, we employ hospitality. And, and hospitality is having a wine program that is approachable, that is, has something for everybody, that is consistent with what was before. So we had a ton of Burgundy and Champagne when I put the list together, but we had four Bordeaux. Well, that's a problem. And I would argue that saying, oh, you don't need any Bordeaux is a pretentious asshole thing to say because people like Bordeaux. And shouldn't we have things that people like? And the sommelier team that I took over when I was there, I said, we have to get this Central Coast Cabernet Sauvignon off the list and we got to put Bordeaux on. And they said, no way, no one drinks Bordeaux anymore. And I said, you guys are so wrong and I'm going to prove it to you. 
I put on a wine by the glass that was from Bordeaux that was $25, $26 a glass. We sold five cases a week until the company ran out of that Bordeaux. And then I replaced it with something else. And it we were selling five cases a week of Bordeaux. And then I increased the Bordeaux section. We probably spent $75,000 just on building out Bordeaux because people like to drink Bordeaux. I don't necessarily always want to drink Bordeaux, but I don't also necessarily always want to drink Burgundy. Sometimes I, I don't even want to drink champagne. I mean, that's like usually when I have the flu and I'm too sick to drink anything. That's the only time I don't want to drink champagne. But, you know, sometimes my book. Okay, so, so I'm going to write a wine list for our guests, not for me. So we are going to have that Oki Bomb Chardonnay. We are going to have that sweet Riesling. We are not going to have a ton of Riesling because I like Riesling. Sounds like Riesling, but guests don't. Guests, we try every time, every time there's the new couple of years or couple of cycles of what's the new fad and Riesling's back on the list and it never takes off because Riesling's just really hard to get people into. I have plenty of friends that love wine, can appreciate Riesling, but never order it, never buy it. Why why am I going to do this? I just come off as an asshole when I'm like going, oh, the only wines I have are the the shit that I want to drink, right? You don't want to go back to that. You don't want to go to that friend's house that's like, yeah, I only drink shitty beer and that's the only thing you're allowed to drink, right? Like, well, I don't want that right now. So it even extended to, I had one year, 2019, I had the opportunity to go to Austria and Germany for 10 days. I think it was 10 days, all expenses paid trip, get to taste with all of these fantastic producers, or I could go to Bordeaux. And I fucking went to Bordeaux because that's, that's where we made all of our money. It, it would behoove me to go somewhere to that. Then I have it, zero application for that on the floor. Maybe I could sell a little bit more Riesling, but I could sell way more Bordeaux and it'd be way easier if I went there. And I ended up going, had the best time. It was, it was the most insane trip. We had lunch at Petrus's, like the family estate, the family house for Petrus. Uh, Matisse on the wall. I'm sitting like all the grandmasters of art is everywhere. It was insane. We went to Lafie Rothschild. We went to everyone but Latour. We went to Chevelle Blanc. Uh, we went to Palmer. I mean, it, it was like six chateaux a day. And every night we stayed the night at a chateau. And it was like, I came back and was like, you guys don't even know. You don't even know what I t-. It took me months to like decompress from that trip. It was so remarkable. So I did, I started making decisions that were predicated upon how do we, yeah, how do we take care of our guests? How do I pivot the wine program into something that takes care of our guests? We can make more money, make more money than we did last year. How do I, how do I have something that's engaging and interesting? How do I balance with being relevant for right now, but also classic at the same time? Because the classics, as Taylor Swift says, they never go out of style, right? They're always going to be relevant. Burgundy is always going to be a thing. The same way that, I'm sorry, Bordeaux is always going to be a thing. But then bringing in, you know, something like Scar of the Seas, Zinfandel that's planted in Rancho Cucamonga in a dry farm vineyard, the vines are over 100 years old. I should have that too, because that's totally progressive, forward-thinking winemaking, using a variety in a way that is totally new and different to the the drinking public. And yeah, so that became, okay, that's my relevant call. And then I have Burgundy and, and Champagne if you want to get radical. You mentioned earlier, like, they basically said, you know, if you got to make it a million dollar wine program, like, do that. 
can a wine list be too big? Like, how do you narrow that down to make it easy for like people coming in the first time? Like you go, you go to enough Michelin restaurants, Michelin star restaurants or whatever. There's some that have this giant book and you know, you got like, it doesn't matter if the entire floor team is all smelly trained. Like you still, when that book hits, you kind of feel like you're on the clock and you're like, all right, I got 10 minutes to like find something in here. How do you navigate that aspect to to making the wine list approachable for people like you mentioned kind of earlier? That then, and that was a Stuckyism. Uh, listen, do we listen to our guests? So if you came in and sit down and I'm I'm taking care of you in whatever capacity and you say, hey, I'd like a, a glass of wine. What's your favorite wine? I'm never going to tell you what my favorite wine is because then you're going to drink champagne for the rest of the night and you might hate me because not everyone likes champagne. What I'm going to respond with is, well, what do you like to drink? Because in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm going to find my favorite wine for what you just told me. My favorite wine for you. I'm not going to do my favorite. So when I would throw down the, the tome that, that is the Republic wine list, and you just see people panic. And I go, look, don't worry about it. What do you want to spend? What do you like to drink? And I would, you know, uh, I want to do Burgundy, and I want to spend 250 bucks. And I'd, I'd think, all right, give me a minute. I'd never look at the list table side because I didn't have time for that shit. It allowed me to walk away, engage with my sommelier team. Hey guys, they want to spend two fifty. What would you do? Because it, it takes a team, right? It takes a village. I'm leading the ship, but I'm I'm dead without them. What do you guys think? Oh yeah, that. Oh, you know what? You're right. We should totally. Okay, I'll be right back. Or they throw out everything, and I'm like, nah, I don't. I don't think they're feeling it. Or in other instances, I'd think, ooh, two fifty. We could do this one for for two forty nine, but you know what? That new producer we got in drinks just like that, and it's one hundred and thirty bucks. Let's do the one hundred and thirty dollars one. So I'm not even going to tell him what the price is. I'll just like, hey, don't worry, I haven't exceeded what you said, and this is the producer. And then if you hate it, we'll drink it and we'll get you something else. That usually meant that ninety five percent of the guests never even picked up the wine list, but we had the breadth to go. What do you want to drink? And I I I have it for you. It may not be what you assumed. It may not be what you have experienced before, but I will get you that flavor profile or, and look, I also think too, like this, an issue with the sommelier community is that we're so into our knowledge. Like, look what I know. Let me just tell you all the things that I know. And I just, then I'm going to, I'm going to have meaning and purpose in life. And it's like, oh my God. So my, my ex-wife, one of the, one of the greatest things she ever did for me, aside from having kids is that she goes, I've just been hired at Frosca and I'm so excited about the wine program and what I'm learning. And I bring on this wine and I open it and I pour it in the glass and she goes to take a sip and I say, wait, 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 wait. I got to tell you about it. She's like, okay. So I tell her about it. She goes to take another sip. I'm like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. I got to tell you what you're smelling. I did that like three, three more times. Right. And I'm so excited. And she finally looks at me and goes, would you just shut the fuck up and let me drink this? And I thought, oh my God, that's such a great point. I'm ruining her experience with this wine because of what I'm trying to impress upon her. And she doesn't care. And if she doesn't care, why am I going to fight to make her care? Or why am I going to try and prove to her that she should care? All I ever wanted to do with guests is make them feel good and make them feel smart or make them feel like they, and you know, like, not like that, right? Not like I think every guest is an idiot, but I don't want them to feel like they're, they're an idiot after talking with me. I want them to feel empowered. And if they're there on a first date and I can help them look like a badass in front of their date, whether it's men, women, whatever, I don't care. If I can do that and make you look cool, I would absolutely love to make you look cool. 
And if I had to guess that the guy that was part of that 5% that would pick up the wine list and be all excited and, and want to talk about it. And then I notice across from him that his wife or girlfriend or boyfriend is just sitting there like, I hate you and your obsession with wine. I'd let the entire team know and I'd never walk back over that table because yes, could I wax on poetically with that guy? Would it be fun to nerd out with him? Absolutely. But that's not why he's here. And I'm going to help him not ruin his evening (laughs) by never stopping talking to me. I'm just going to orchestrate that to happen. Two guests sit down and they seem like they're peeved, pissed off, maybe at each other. Immediately walk over with champagne, not even acknowledging that they look angry at each other. But hey, thanks so much for coming in. Thought maybe you two might like to start off with some champagne. Just hang out for a little bit. Pregnant women would come in and I'd find out, never would ask, never would ask. Are you pregnant? But would find out that they're definitely not drinking because they're pregnant would walk over with half glass of champagne at some point in the meal and go, look, you don't have to drink this, but growing a human being is really hard. I have three kids. I know what that's like. I know what you're about to get into. This is just for you if you need it. Obviously, he can drink it, and, but you can have it. It's totally fine. Nothing, nothing bad's going to happen to the baby. At 70, 75% of the time, or roughly there, uh, they, they drink it and be so happy and thrilled. And it was just that little extra thing, but it had nothing to do with me. It wasn't me going off in any way, shape, or form. It was just, you look like you could use this. So let me give it to you because because I think that that would be better. So, And I told Melissa, Walter, and Marge this. I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a wine program for you and establish something that actually is, in, is kind of boxed in so that future wine directors, everything will kind of stay the same rather than these whiplash overhauls where you're complete, the identity of a part of your restaurant changes overnight. I'm just gonna I'm gonna frame this so that, that that doesn't happen and you're not you're not going from one wine director to another with uh more and more inventory that's just gonna sit there and eventually go bad. You were there through COVID, the pandemic, the restaurant shuts down, eventually reopens with limited capacity. When the shutdown happens, you guys kind of liquidate some of the inventory, right, to raise money and funds for the staff and everything. And then when it slowly reopens, you kind of have to build it back up. How much of a challenge is it to build that wine program back up after essentially doing some liquidation? Is it easier because everybody's got this glut of wine hanging around, all these you know winemakers, and they're like, well, nobody was buying it because everything's closed? Or is it harder because you're trying to find things that you sold off that you're trying to replace to get it back to where it was? Like, How does that challenge work? How do you approach that? When we were shut down, the inventory was at uh, $850,000. We sold off about 150, 200 during that period of time, but we were really selective in what we sold. Oh, we have a whole case of this. Let's sell eight bottles. So then at least we reopen and we, and I mean, look, if this is 2012 Von Romany and we still have 12 bottles, let's sell off eight. We can stick with the four and then it, it'll be fine. And then rebuilding was not really that hard, but the list didn't really contract very much. It was just inventory that we had. And there were some wines on there that I, that I wanted to get rid of because I thought, you know what, these are becoming more collector wines and we're, we're not in that market where people will drop necessarily eight grand on a bottle of champagne. So why don't I just give these to some collectors in the restaurant, some guests of ours, we, we hook them up, you know, by selling it to them. And then we kind of regroup from there and see what works post pandemic because you don't know, you don't know if you're going to make it. You don't know if tomorrow's the last day that the restaurant's open. So again, I'm going to make sure that that the, the owners of the restaurant are happy with with what's going on. I'm not going to spend too much money. I'm going to live with within our means and just be grateful I have a job. 
In 2020, we were talking about how that affected the restaurant Repro Bleak when you were there and everything and how you guys kind of managed selling off some of the cellar and keeping funds alive for staff and rebuilding and everything. Also around that time, you launched your wine club, Wednesday Night Wine Club. So was that something you had the idea for for a while? Was it born out of the pandemic? Like where did that kind of inspiration come from? Why'd you do it? Yeah, so it was born... It was really born out of the pandemic, the selling of the inventory. So I had a um, very close friends uh, had reached out and said, you know, we'd like to give you, I think, a hundred dollars, and we just pick out some fun stuff, and and we'll have a friend come pick it up. And a few days later, she asked if she can FaceTime me <clears throat> and wants to know about the wines, and I launch into my kind of table side sommelier manner. And I I have a really hard time with most of my industry because I think that we tend to approach wine um, either clinically, where we talk about how it's made in terms of oak aging or this warm harvest or whatever. It it there's there's not an emotional response or it tends to feel like we pontificate about all this information that we know and how impressive we are because look at what I know. And then conversely, I think sommeliers are some of the most insecure um, people in the hospitality industry because everyone's worried that they're not like, do I like what everybody else likes? Is this okay that I don't like this? I decided to take this approach early on in my career where I would speak about wine as it pertains to the emotion that it pulls out of you. One of the things I, I very clearly remember saying to her is that this Pinot from the Jura was more like a high five, whereas this Chianti Classico was more like a hug. And that resonated with her. And so what I was trying to say is the Pinot Noir is going to be a little bit leaner and higher in acidity, whereas the Chianti Classico is a little bit fuller body. It's rounder and richer. When we we say rounder, richer, there's I, I think that there can be kind of, it's a little subjective uh, when you say those those words. Whereas everyone understands what a high five is. Everyone understands what a hug is. I've compared wines to being like holding someone's hand for the first time because you kind of get that like, because the acidity kind of, you know, kicks in. Um, I've talked about champagne kind of, you know, certain champagnes being like, you know, kissing someone for the first time. These are all relatable things. And I think if we start to talk about how wine makes us feel, I think that that kind of gets back to the core of what wine is about, which is about this feeling, this this interaction that you have with your guests. It's not it's not this hollowed wine that everyone shut the fuck up and let's all think about it, right? And I mentioned my ex-wife doing that. Like, would you just shut up and let me drink? It's like, yeah, that that's so the point. And and you go to Italy, you go to France, most of the wine they're drinking um, is around a meal and it's around an emotion. It's 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 part of the fuller experience. It isn't the main point. So in in doing that with her. All of a sudden, I this uh, thing went off in my head, you know, light bulb. And I thought, I wonder if anyone's doing that in a wine club. And so I spent the next 48 hours looking at everyone's wine club and no one was doing videos to talk about the wine. And so I thought, yeah, okay, so there's there is a market for this. I think millennials are, you know, my generation into Gen X, there there's this odd relationship with wine. I think because of what our parents, the the uh, baby boomers and and how they just, it's different, right? So it's evolving. It's, it's in this state of flux and converse or side by side with that, 
then you had this proliferation of the idea of becoming a master sommelier and the celebrity that went around that. And then it was about how much can you learn? And I knew people that were studying that were really good at taking tests. They weren't that great at hospitality. And Danny Myers talks about that. It's, you know, you're born with it or you're not. It's not something that you can train. You can train the mechanics. You can train the study. You can read. If you can retain information, you know, it, it, you can you can be a sommelier. But how how do you how do you shift into the hospitality mode of how you make someone feel? That complicates the relationship with wine because it can be seen as very pretentious or it can be seen as super complicated or this this like oh, it's just another thing that I have to get into. Whereas if you know what a Pilsner tastes like, you, I mean, it's, it's a Pilsner. And how often do you go into a, even a beer garden and go, hey, can I, uh, can I get that Pilsner? And the person pours it and goes, here you go. Did you know that the hops in this came from this place? And then they did this and then did, like no one did. It's just, here you go, drink that and have fun. Come back and let me know if you need another one. Have a good time. So if, if beer can be held in that, which I find that's like pleasure right there. That's the enjoyment of the beverage in front of you. And if you want to know more, you can ask, but it doesn't add to the equation of enjoying a beer. And so while I do think that there's all this history behind wine and I love reading about it and I think it's fascinating. I also think sometimes I can get in the way of just enjoying what's in front of you. I wanted to start this wine club as a way to make wine really, really fun to drink and slightly irreverent. Yeah, I'd highlight a producer, but you know, I'd highlight things that I think that are anecdotally fun. I, I wanted to do these videos so that you could watch it as you're about to drink the wine and be like, huh, okay, that's, you know, that's very interesting. I also wanted you to be able to watch the videos and think, ooh, we got that dinner party that I'm going to later this week. I'm going to bring this bottle for that dinner party. And then I'm going to be able to talk about this wine. And I'm going to be the smartest person in the room as far as wine's concerned. And everyone's going to be like, wow, you know, they really, hey, hey, we should listen to this guy more when we go out to order. And even that, I wanted to give this, this idea that you, you would be able to sit down at a wine list on a first date or with your in-laws and not feel overwhelmed by what's in front of you, but have a context of, you know what, I, I don't recognize any of these wines on the list, but I do know that I like Chablis. I know that I don't like Chardonnay from California. You know, that's something that I can't tell you how many times guests would come in the restaurant and I'd say, what, what kind of white do you want to drink? And they'd go, you know, I really love Chablis, but I hate Chardonnay. And like, okay, great. I know what that means that you don't want rich, oaky, buttery Chardonnay, but I can give you a white Burgundy that's not Chablis and you're going to be floored with it. But if I tell you it's Chardonnay, you're going to immediately reject it. So how do we kind of bridge these gaps and, and make it fun, make it enjoyable, make it what I think wine is supposed to be about? I think that that really does a disservice because you put the wine up on a pedestal and then everyone else around them is considered lesser. When if you blind tasted all of those wines side by side, you might have rather than a huge variation in quality, you might kind of feel like, oh, this one, I like this one the most, but these are all pretty good. Well, then why is the one that's slightly better in a blind tasting cost eight times more? I remember when Clos Rougeard, you would walk into wine shops and see stacks and stacks of Clos Rougeard and it was $30 a bottle. I remember Chablis still being at 20 like village level Chablis. $20 a bottle. And now certain producers can be 120 
You know, I mean, that's just, that's absurd to me because it's just Chablis, but it's the, it's that collector mentality. It's that I got to find the next thing, the, the Instagram wine, wine clubs that are being created with highly collectible, highly allocated. That's so stressful. And then you're worried like, oh, did I get the email fast enough? Did I, you know, it's like trying to um, book a reservation at like a Noma or something. You know, you wake up at five in the morning to make sure you get your, and it's like, okay, for Noma, that's fun. And, and occasionally I think that that's worth it. But what, what about your everyday? If, if every day when you went out to eat, you had to wake up at 5 a.m. to ensure that you got a reservation, it would be a miserable dining experience. How do I liken the wine experience to just being able to walk into your local restaurant, sit down and have a perfectly good meal? And, and I'm, so I'm picking wines that there's a ton of it. You can get more if you want. This is not a wine that you need to wait for the right moment to drink. I liken it a lot to that Seinfeld episode about, you know, is he sponge worthy? Like, how horrible is it if you have your, your friends come over and you think, are, are they worth this opening this bottle of wine? And I thought I wanted every wine to be in the club to be like, you know, this is great. This is super fun. And then you get back into the conversation that you're having with the person in front of you. There was a restaurant in New York when we were going there last. Their reservations are literally a week out. And I've looked into it and there's no reason, like it's not flexibility for vacation, blah, blah, blah. Like, no, it's just like, yeah, uh, this doesn't open until next Monday from this Monday. And it's like, what? Like you're in New York. Like you can do at least a month. Like what are we doing? Like, and it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of weird, but yeah, I, I totally get your point with a lot of that being just kind of getting to this point where everything is collectible and everything is like this instant gratification thing where it's like, oh, great, I got that. What's the next thing? And it's not appreciating what the whole thing kind of is, essentially. Bigger version, bigger picture of it where it's all just really narrow focused in the moment. I feel like when you see people on Instagram that kind of fixate solely on Grand Cru, I think it's great. I have a couple of friends that do it. I learn a lot because they give really great tasting notes and I'm not in the restaurant industry anymore. So most people think I drink like that all the time. And it's like, no, I, I only got to taste what I tasted because I was at Republique. The minute that, that that goes away, unless you have really wealthy friends, that stops. That's really helpful. And it's helpful to kind of keep up with what I feel like I need to know as a wine professional. But I think that it takes away from the idea that wine is cultural. Wine was something that you had with every meal and the prohibition in the US really ushered in the idea of binge drinking. We didn't binge drink before. When you are presented with, this might be the last time I drink alcohol for who knows how long, you get as rip-roaring drunk as you possibly can. But before that, yeah, wine was just a beverage. Richard Betts, one of my favorite master sommeliers, I had the pleasure of working with him a couple of times on the floor at Frosca. And he really kind of drove that idea home that it's just a beverage. It's just fermented grape juice. There are special occasion wines and there are special occasions. And I want to drink something really nice. I don't drink champagne every day. However, I think that champagne is a like an everyday beverage. You know, it. I, I understand why it's expensive. When I go into a restaurant, I tend to think in that mentality of I've I've reserved money for a glass of bubbles to start, or you know what, I'm going to do a bottle of champagne because I know that champagne actually pairs with everything, and I would rather drink champagne through the entire meal than any other wine. So, how do we get back into the cultural, the enjoyment, the fun, and then getting to kind of expand your horizons? Most recently in the in the club, I had to kind of pause because the weather's just been so hot. It's so hot right now. I drove from my house in Ventura down to LA the other day and it was it got up to a hundred degrees during that like 
commute and then to come back and it was still a hundred degrees. And then I had to go up to Santa Barbara and in Ventura it was 72 degrees. But when I got up to Santa Barbara, for some reason it was 85. Anyways, it's an October thing. So I've had to pause a lot for the summer, but you know, I picked a, a Vino Verde. Vino Verde doesn't have the reputation that like Sauvignon Blanc does, but I, I like Vino Verde over Sauvignon Blanc. And I think that like trying to expose people to like, yeah, you would have never thought to try this before, but here you go. And then I was tasted the other day on a gros men saying, petite men saying, not from the Jurançon, but from a, an appellation I'd never heard of before. And when I tasted it, the first thing I thought was, oh, this is authentic bistro wine. And then I thought, ooh, this is perfect for the wine club. Like, this is exactly what I want because a bistro wine is where, you know, you get it in the shitty wine glass that that is not great for swirling. It's just great for drinking and it's enjoyable and it's cold and it's, you know, delicious. And then going, hey, uh, these are two weird grape varieties. And if you see them on a wine list, you should check them out because I think this is a better alternative to a Sauvignon Blanc. And Sauvignon Blanc has become so homogenous. And if I'm going to drink Chablis, the only Chablis that I tend to love and think, wow, that's really good, is all grown on Kimmeridgian soil, which is the most expensive of Sancerre. And you're spending $250, $300 a bottle. And and it's like, well, right, okay, so we made a fetish out of that. I, I can't afford to do that anymore. So what's the next thing? Where's the next place that I can go to get that same level of enjoyment? And for me, Petit Men saying the Jurançon is that happy place. And then reds, I try to kind of focus outside of, again, that Cabernet, Pinot Noir, Syrah, like all the comfortable reds. And and how do we go into something that is yeah, a little bit off the beaten path? Or how do I show you a delicate Syrah versus feeling like you always need these big burly, but you can get delicate Syrah? What if it's a carbonically macerated Cabernet Sauvignon? That's interesting. You don't see it a lot, but like all of the facets of grapes and that they don't just have to fit into one box. Because I think sometimes we look at wine as being black and white, but rather it's a kaleidoscope of colors. And I think it's that way, again, because we don't have the culture instilled into us as Americans. We binge drink. If you go to Italy and France, that binge drinking mentality is actually starting to seep into the culture. That was never the norm. You'd go there and and wine was just a, a normal part of every meal, but you didn't drink in excess. That Western American idea is slowly Europe is changing. I mean, even the fact that supermarkets are now invading France, people are loving them. Your butchers are going away, your cheesemongers are going, right? And it's it's a destruction of culture. And then ironically, so that's an American idea. America is now going back into the artist artisanal shop. I want to go to the meat, uh, the butcher. I want to go to the baker. I want to go to the cheese thing. I want to go to the independent wine shop. It's very weird how that, you know, spirals like that. So wine doesn't need to be so fucking stuffy. It doesn't need to be opened up with gloved hands in the cradle and the thing. I mean, if you want that ballet, if I'm going to go to the ballet, I'll go two times a year, but I don't want to go every day. With the videos that you do, is there a certain length that you cap yourself on? Or is it you just want to get whatever information in on that wine? And if it winds up being seven minutes instead of five, that's fine. Ray, that is the stress point of every video that I go into. And I like agonize over it. And I, I will get so stressed out. I'll have like Monday set aside. Like I'm going to film today and I won't be able to film until Friday. I so shift into perfectionist mode that it is crippling. I worry about the background. Like even now we're on this video and I'm like, I hate this background, but I don't have anywhere else in the house that I really love the background. 
but it, it like drives me up a wall. And so the first couple of videos that I did, I had to, I had to learn how to speak differently because I said, um, a lot, which what I recognized is when I said, um, a lot, it meant that I hadn't rehearsed what I was going to say. So then I'd have to do six or seven takes of the video before the ums would leave because I had a clear and concise way to talk about it. My videos aren't scripted. I have points that I know that I want to hit, but it's not scripted. So then you're kind of riffing, which is what I would do table side. I remember a couple of times I had two takes. I had to like intersperse what I said because I didn't like fully like take one and I didn't fully like take two. But if you spliced it all, it was perfect. As far as timing is concerned, I initially wanted to go down to just three minutes. And then I realized that that I'm then pigeonholing myself. If I need to talk about Riesling, Riesling and German Riesling, German Riesling requires a lot more, hey, so this is what you see on the, the label and this is cabinet. And, and then I think, well, if someone said, well, what, what does cabinet mean? And what, uh, well, okay, cabinet. And then there's Spätlese and Auslese, but don't worry about those are just slightly sweeter if you want sweeter. I'm not going into the must weight and the acid levels and not like, don't worry about that. It's just if you want something slightly sweeter, but you should know Spätlese and Auslese. You know how every sommelier is like, wine's awesome and I love studying until you get to fucking Germany. And it's like, what the hell? This is the one of the most confusing Appalachian law systems, all of the words, nothing makes sense. Riesling videos tend to be a bit longer because I just feel like that that's necessary. And I'm not trying to weigh you down with must wait and all that. I'm just trying to give you how to read a German Riesling label. And now that's a video reference that if you're sitting in a restaurant and you're like, what is that? Oh, I can watch this video real quick. Scrub to where Sam's talking about the, okay, perfect. If you want to talk to sommelier about it, you can. If you want to impress your date, you totally have the way to do it while they get up to go to the bathroom real quick and just look at, you know, I try just to do one take, like watch it back, see what I like. If there's any fat that I can trim, I might do a second take. I might do eight takes, which is always difficult because by the eighth take, I'm pretty hammered. <laughs> and it's like, then I think, why do I keep tasting the wine? I do it to myself every single time. I'm like, well, I don't need to keep tasting this, but I do. And then going back and like, okay, I got to splice a couple of these images. Then I'm realizing that in this scene, the bottle's full. And then the next scene, it's like almost empty. Then I'm like, that's really funny. So I'm just going to keep that in there, you know, like, and what are like those little, I call them Easter eggs. Like if I keep an Easter egg in there and I go, I wonder how many people are going to be like, what, did he just, is that bottle empty? Is he kind of drunk right now? You know, no one's doing that. I can't remember his name, but somebody else said, oh, there was a wine shop owner that actually used to do that. He would do these videos, but I found him and I watched the videos and I was like, I'm interested in this, but I'm also like, Oh my God, this is so boring. It's so tedious. There's so, And he's like kind of monotone and he's not making jokes. And like, if I can make sexually suggestive jokes in my videos, I'm like, yes. Like I like crushed something right there because it just, it's funny. There's one of the muscadets that I featured is more in the, the natural low intervention style. And you know, because of the label <laughs> and the label is two oyster shells kind of at an angle with hands around them. I'm like, yeah, that's like, that's also referencing grabbing boobs. And like, let's talk about that for a minute. This, these are ridiculous labels and that's pretty funny. You're going to remember the wine more because of something silly like that than if I talk to you about the must weight and the acid levels in this reason that you're about to consume. 
with the wines and the wine club, like, is there a point where you'll get to where that wine you previously featured, you won't feature anymore, even in the next year or whatever? And if so, would you take that video of a wine that you're no longer going to include in the club and put it all in one place, like on a YouTube channel or a TikTok account or something? Like, is that something that you're considering doing? Yeah. So actually everything is on the YouTube channel now, as well as Instagram. I kind of post to both. You just kind of get a wider audience, but also that all that going through the analytics of trying to get that shit out there and promoted. It's so incredibly disheartening. And I've had to like, this is in the universe sands as to whether or not it's going to do well, or I can't stress about that. My mental health has taken a beating uh, over the summer, which it was very convenient that I didn't have to ship out wine during the summer because I just, when you're depressed and then talking about wine, it's like the sad, like no one wants that fucking wine. You know, it's like, and then it's, you know, then I'm just like, <laughs> like Sam has a drinking problem now. I just have to make it as light and fun as I possibly can. I made a decision early on that I didn't necessarily need to feature the same producer year over year. Because I think that that then adds to the thing that I'm trying to combat, which is, oh, this one producer is superior to all these other producers. It's like, no, this is another example of how good Syrah can be. This is another example of a great Chardonnay. I found this, this Burgundy producer that I could sell for $25, a Bourgogne Blanc for $25. I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah, I'll take it. And then I want to talk about like, how amazing is that? And this is Chardonnay. And some of you are going to be like, gross, I'm never drinking this. I don't know how quickly people are drinking the wine. And maybe you forget that you even have it. You know, if you've got kind of one of those glass cellars and you just like, well, I'm not drinking tonight, you put it away and then you forget that it's there. Yeah, I want people to be able to come back and reference it. If they think, oh man, I'm on a Syrah kick right now, just find all the videos on Syrah to try and geek out more on Syrah if that's something that happens to be interesting to you in the moment all the videos will be um, archived and um, and available, you know, in perpetuity. What's been the primary obstacle with the wine club? Has it been the weather and like shipping and just it gets too warm, you can't ship stuff because it'll potentially distort the wine? Is that the main thing? I'd say actually the most difficult thing about the wine club is me. I've been going through this really intense period of my life of learning how to grieve and how to just kind of work on that other side of, of ourselves. It's really, really hard. And that then ties into anxiety and imposter syndrome of no one wants to fucking see this. This is the stupidest thing that I've ever done. And I get this resounding response from people that's like, no, my God, we love this. This is so much fun. But I work from home. I'm by myself. And you can just totally spiral in. Why would I, I, why would I even bother? There's a an author that names escape me today, but he wrote a book called The War of Art. Um, not Art of War, but The War of Art. And he talks about how you have the muse, and then you basically have evil. And, and the evil comes and tells you that what you're doing, it's not worth it. You're not good enough. No one cares. It's the imposter syndrome. All of that kicks in. So that that is something that I struggle with constantly. And then I, I look at people like Molly Baz or Alison Roman. And I am totally inspired by their videos and what they do. And I think, how do you make it look so effortless? And you just, you let mistakes happen, you know, whatever. And I agonize over all of that stuff. And I get so in my head. That to me is the, the biggest thing is just me as a person and 
I had a, a very close friend of mine. They they own a, a record label, and he is a Emmy nominated and and has won Emmys for music that he's written for daytime television. So they manage artists and all of that. And and I helped them out at a an event that they did with the wine club. And uh, at the end, I looked at my friend Jen and I said, you know, after that presentation, I I know that I need to go talk to everybody up there, but I just. Like I'm kind of spent and, and I like doing what I just did, but that's a little bit harder. And she laughed and she said, well, yeah, that's like, that's artists, musical artists. They, they get up there and can totally perform in front of 10,000 people. But after the show, they're like, they want to go and hibernate and be by themselves and, you know, and just, or just with their core group of friends. So I've started to kind of take what I do and think, how do I perceive the world through more of the artist lens? I think hospitality is art. I think I think that there is actually so many things in our life that is art. So many things that we do. This podcast is art. And so if I look through it from the the artist perspective, the artist lens, I'm also looking at it from the the view not of truth but of beauty. If I lead with beauty and I lead with this artistic approach, I think that that ends up having a more profound effect and I I think that I also then become this artist that is is not the like loosey goosey, you know, like I know I need, I need, but I also need to learn how to let it go. And I need to learn how to trust myself. I need to learn how to just be okay with the background, not looking perfect and everything. So that's, that's always the biggest, the biggest hurdle. And that requires a village, you know, you, you need, you need people in your life to be able to, to talk through and go, you need encouragement right? The the biggest thing is at the end of the day, you need people around you saying, no, you're doing a really good job. Or no, we really do actually like what you're doing. And it gives you that extra push. It gives you that extra gas in your tank to get you just to pass the finish line. Is a wine club the best way to get wine now in 2023? Because your grocery stores, they're going to have stuff, but they're not necessarily going to have everything. You can order it from giant distribution people whatever they're, you know, all the big needs and stuff like that, interstate commerce, all that stuff. It gets pricey, especially with shipping and controlling and everything. Is that kind of the best way to get interesting wines that you're probably not going to find locally? And that could be too expensive to ship if you're going through, you know, a big group or something like that. Because they might not highlight those things that you're kind of looking for. You could find in a more curated, individualized wine club. No, no, no. I think that that's a great question. I mean, I'll use LA as an example. I think the wine scene in LA has kind of become a caricature of itself because we're maybe in that post caricaturizing of itself. But the natural wine scene is so absurd. It's weird because if you're in LA, the east side is where all the natural wine is. If you go to the west side, it's more like Rombauer level Chardonnays and bigger rounder. And then if you're in the middle, it's kind of a hodgepodge. And and I think that's where everyone starts doing the ego-driven wine list. What we should be doing is providing delicious wine at various price points and taking care of people. So I think that if you're in a major market like LA, you know, it's like you walk into a wine shop and you realize, oh, everything in here is natural. I don't want natural. I walk into a restaurant and every wine is natural. I'm like, Ugh, I don't want kombucha right now. <laughs> I want Riesling, clean, clean Riesling. That frustrates me because that's like walking into a restaurant and all we serve is burgers. We serve 37 different types of burgers. Well, can I get a salad? No, we don't believe in salads. Burgers are the only thing that you should be eating. And he's just like, you're an asshole at that point. That's not hospitality. That's not taking care of people. 
a wine club can be really great. I always recommend this to people that if you find a bottle of wine that you like in the wild, you're at a restaurant and you love it, turn around and look at the importer. And the importer is going to be an indicator of like, ooh, we have similar tastes. I bet you most of the wine, that's going to be good because yeah, I think for me with, with my wine club, which I, you know, is the best wine club out there. But I think for my wine club, you start to learn what my tastes are. And if my tastes match up with your tastes, great. And I've had club members that after three or four months, they go, hey, we just don't understand what you're doing. Not in a, like an inept way, but like we just don't get what why you like these wines. And so we're just going to cancel. Like, hey, totally understand. My tastes are subjective. They are not better than anyone else's. I was just talking with someone last night all of the wine that she likes are bigger, richer, higher alcohol style wines. She likes stuff that I would never drink. It does not mean that she has bad taste. She just likes what she likes. And there's nothing wrong with that. And she gets pleasure out of it. She gets the joy. And even in having that conversation, I started, I was watching someone that in, was enjoying wine for the sake of enjoying wine rather than the intellectualizing it. And that was really cool to have that experience. And yeah, so I just like what I like. So wine clubs can be great in, in, in that regard. And I think wine clubs can also help you expand your repertoire or expand your horizons on wines that are available. They kind of take the fear out of, is this good? You know, when you're sitting at a wine shop going, there's 500 different bottles in here, which one is the best? I think my club kind of can narrow that down for you. I like to explain things in such a way that you finish the video and go, you know what? I, I like Vino Verdes. Okay. I'm going to keep a lookout for Vino Verdes and just try a bunch of different Vino Verdes. This is like a new style of wine that I can get into and it's affordable and they're more accessible. If you're in the middle of the country, if you're you're in a town that doesn't really have a wine shop, yeah, I think wine clubs are great for that. A super fun way to drink outside of your norm. And I'm also picking wines that are made well. That's something to it too. I don't care about if you are organic biodynamic, if you are loot raisiny, which is you know, making wine as you see fit. I don't care if you are natural. Um, if the wine tastes good, great. I want to drink that. I can't remember if I said this in, in part one, but that idea that if my child gets sick with a cold, you know, I might give them Tylenol. I might just, hey, why don't you go to bed early and you just let your body holistically heal itself, right? It's just a cold, not the end of the world. If my child gets cancer, I want all of the drugs, all of the things to save my child's life. So it's weird that that's okay. But then in the wine world, we flipped it around and said any use of chemicals at all in any way, shape or form are the worst thing ever. And in fact, those chemicals are the things that give you a hangover, <laughs> which like, no, drinking too much gives you a hangover. Sulfur doesn't do that. It's the, it, it is the biggest perpetuated lie that we keep feeding the general public that somehow natural wine, you can drink as much natural wine as you want. You'll feel great in the morning. Like, no, that's not how it works. I had one day where I was eating and drinking and we drank two bottles of Quintarelli Amarone, 17 and a half percent alcohol. I woke up the next day, fresh as a daisy, no hangover whatsoever. I, like, I, no, it's just, it, there are so many other mitigating factors there. And then we... As consumers put this radical, radical mandate on winemakers when we have no financial skin in the game. So don't use chemicals. And if Mother Nature is a bitch and comes through and fucks shit up for you, we're not going to drink any of your wine if you spray a chemical in it. 
Whereas they're looking at it as this is my livelihood. And if I have to spray copper sulfate in the vineyard one time, what's wrong with that? We do it to ourselves and all the people that are drinking natural wine, it's like, oh, so you you only eat food that has no pesticides or anything? That's almost impossible. And it, you know, it's like vegans that are like, oh yeah, I'm a vegan, but I also drink all this kinds of wine. And it's like, a lot of wine is not vegan. And no one ever thinks to ask that question. When I was in Bordeaux a couple of years back, I went on this absurd trip and it it fundamentally changed my mind about wine. It took me months to fully wrap my head around what I had experienced because it was so incredible. And I totally fell in love with that region. It's changing, but I feel like with my age group, it's one of the most maligned wine making regions in the world right now. I love Bordeaux. And I, I tasted some of the greatest wine of my life there that was so heavily like scrutinized and they've got like beakers and it's these huge... You know, we went to Chateau Margaux. That was stunning and mind-blowing. And the amount of, yeah, scrutiny that they put over the wines, it's incredible. And it was one of the best tastings I've ever had. What Some of the greatest wine I've ever had. The first Chateau that we we get to is uh, Chateau Canon. Had just been purchased or recently purchased by LVMH. And so we get a very LVMH treatment. This woman who works there, she's not a winemaker, which, you know, if you've gone to Burgundy, you taste with all the winemakers. If you go to Bordeaux, you tend to taste with an employee, you know, you're not, or the winemaker, but you're not tasting with the owner. She comes out and she pours us one wine and we're all like, that's it. Okay. That's weird. Can we walk through the vineyards? Because the vineyards are right there. Can we just at least do that? I mean, get something out of this trip. And she said, no, I think that they just sprayed copper sulfate in the vineyard. And I go, well, what's wrong with that? That's organic agriculture right there. That's organic viticulture. I mean, it's totally permissible and organic. Why can't we walk through the vineyards? And she said, oh, well, because it could kill you. We usually wait about three to four days in between sprays before you can walk the vineyards because you can ingest, inhale stuff and it give you like make you sick and kill you. And I'm like, but that's that's organic. Why would something, why would we call something organic when we can use a chemical to spray could kill you? Which then what are we killing in the vineyard when that happens? And I've had a few other people that are like, that's not true. But if that's not true, then every time that I saw tractors spraying copper sulfate in the vineyards in Bordeaux, why are they all wearing hazmat suits? That doesn't make any sense. And I would spit like, hey, is that pesticide or is that copper sulfate? And they're like, no, that's, that's the copper sulfate. And then on top of that, the word copper well, that's a heavy metal. And so then I came back and I realized the production method that you use can be the production method that you use, but it doesn't, it, they all have their problems. They're all problematic. If you go non like low intervention and you don't spray anything in the vineyards and you just let it do, then you're the, the problem is mother nature. And you may not make it as a winemaker because your vintages get smaller and smaller and smaller. And with climate change and, and how crazy everything is, biodynamics allows for a little bit of copper to be sprayed if you need it. And we just embrace organic and biodynamic, but like, do we ask questions? And so when I came back from that Bordeaux trip, this, this line kept like going around and around in my head, which is we're consumers without conviction. If I tell you that you should drink natural wine, we just go, well, that's superior to all the other wines, but we like, why? We haven't asked, we haven't like dug through. That really bothers me. And as you can tell, I'm on a soapbox talking about that. That's one of like my biggest pet peeves. We make winemakers jump through hoops for us. We're just consuming it. We're not making it. Why does it matter? Why does it matter if they added a little bit of sulfur right at bottling? And there, the, there was a you know, wine director in LA who 
told a rep friend of mine had a list of the 10 most important things that she looks for in, in wines that she's bringing into the restaurant. And the taste was number 10. It was the last thing she considered in every wine that she brought into her restaurant. That's just, that's so fucking stupid. So you mentioned earlier, people going through the exam process and everything. You yourself went through it. Uh, you passed the advanced exam. Nope. I went through the certification process really because I thought, well, it's not going to hurt me. And at the time, it kind of felt like being certified meant something. You know, now I feel like if you're a certified sommelier, it's like bragging that you have a bachelor's degree. Like nobody cares. <laughs> Unfortunately. That doesn't ensure you a job because look at how many other people have a bachelor's degree. Now, if you have a, a doctorate or a master's, like that's raises it up. So to me, your master's degree is your advanced. And my experience is that getting the certification doesn't mean you're great on the floor. Doesn't mean that you are great with hospitality. How do you contextualize wine? How do you how do you talk about it anecdotally? How do you how do you relate with people to wine? And so if you're just into the knowledge and passing the next step and the next level, you're missing the point. Now, I don't think that that is universally true of everyone that's going through the court or WSET. I just think that sometimes that piece of it, I wish that part of the court required that if you were going to become a master sommelier, you had to like intern with and work for a restaurant for a master sommelier for a year. That would be amazing. The only problem is, is that in, in one of the most ironic twists, when you become a master sommelier, you leave the floor. Bobby Stuckey and Yoon Han, I think, are the only two master sommeliers who consistently work the floor anymore, like all the time. You have, you know, Bobby owns Frosca and Tavernetta and Sunday Vinyl and, and all of that. But he works the floor. Yoon Han works the floor. I don't have an issue with any of these master sommeliers that get off the floor. But I do think that isn't the whole point of becoming a master sommelier is like Bobby said, this is just a better way for me to take care of my guests. But then we use it as a ripcord to get out of the, the industry because you can make a shitload more money being a brand ambassador for Krug or you know doing all these other things. But I wish that there was a, some kind of requirement that, yeah, you had to learn hospitality, not just service, but you had to learn hospitality. You had to learn how to, to sell a bottle of wine, how to relate with a bottle of wine. And what's really difficult about that is that that's so subjective. How do you test on that? How do you create a test structure to make sure that you've actually figured out what hospitality is? And then if you're going by the extension of the Danny Myers philosophy of the 51%, well, then there's going to be a huge swath of people that want to take that test that are told, you can't join our team. That's not very inclusionary. It sets its own problems and whatever. So I, I just kind of thought, I felt like if I continued to study in this and, and I went for my advance and then eventually to become a, a master sommelier, it would really just be because I needed I needed those qualifications to get a job that would provide for my family. Once I got the gig at Republique, I thought, yeah, I don't I don't need that qualification anymore. My tenure here is going to be more meaningful than passing a test. And I think that that real, you know, it's just the real world experience over there are guys that spend $25,000 a year blind tasting wines and pass the test and they don't ever work in a restaurant. That's weird. That's problematic to me. And when you look at Bobby Stuckey and the master sommeliers that have come out of him or the advanced sommeliers that have come out of him or the hospitality people that have come out of him, he is an incredible mentor. And that man will have a greater impact on the hospitality industry on a whole than almost any other restaurateur that I can think of because his whole ethos and how he brings people up in that company 
is hospitality is the number one thing. I mean, I meet people and I, I can tell like, did you ever work for Bobby Stuckey? You know, and like, yeah, how did you know that? Like, yeah, it's just, you just have this thing. To watch a master sommelier work the floor every night, five, six nights a week. And I remember one, it was like a parent's weekend, which were always the worst. Parent weekends were the fucking worst. You get divorced parents, sit next, ugh. And this gentleman came in. He was 10 minutes early. We were going to, it was still going to take 10 minutes after his reservation time to get the table turned because the guests were just kind of lingering and we were doing the best that we can. And Bobby walks up and says, you know, I'm so sorry. Table's just going to take a few more minutes. I have some wine here for you to enjoy while you wait. And we have these prosciutto sticks, you know, bread sticks with prosciutto wrapped around it for you just to enjoy. And the dude lost his fucking mind and was inches away from Bobby's face, screaming at him in the dining room. And the entire time, Bobby's composure remained the same. And he just kept saying, sir, I am so sorry. Your table's going to be ready in a minute. If there's anything else that I can get you in the meantime, I really want to take care of you. Let me turn this around. I'm so sorry. So the gentleman is, is angry about something that we can't, like, we can't control that. The, this is what happens in restaurants. People stay longer than they're supposed to. He is angry. And, and I know this from, from working with Bobby as long as I did. There's something else that he's angry about. So how do we tap into figuring out what that is, then helping the guest have a great experience and winding them back down to where by the end of it, we're best friends and we can let it go because, hey, it's not about us. It's not personal. You just had a really bad day. Maybe traffic, maybe maybe that guy's mom died earlier in the week and he's grieving. And so his rage, the rage component of grief comes out and he just flips out on Bobby and Bobby never lost his composure and was gracious and kind. And that dude left because he was so mad. And Bobby <laughs> chased him out the door with a gift card and said, please come back. I really want to take care of you. Who else thinks in those terms of hospitality? And that guy is never going to be able to, that guy probably will never come back to the restaurant, but he's never going to say a bad thing about the restaurant because he's going to take that gift card and he's going to give it to somebody as a gift. The brilliance of Bobby Stuckey in that, you know, like I got to take that and then apply it. And, and I worked with like-minded people at Republic. And I just think that that's such an important piece of what we do. And it's often lost in this art form. When you go out to dinner now, do you compulsively check the wine list at a place that you go to to see what they have? Or are you able to just separate it? And Yeah, I don't do that. We, I just ate with my business partner at a restaurant in LA called Salty Girl. And they've got two and a half pages of tin seafood. Awesome. And we sat out on the patio and had a long lunch. I think we dined for like four hours. They had a bottle of Chocolina on the list. Never heard of it. And it was 87 bucks. And there was Grand Cru Burgundy and there's champagne and there's all of this stuff. And we could have gone there. I was like, eh, Chocolina, I bet you that'll be awesome. I bet you that'll be so refreshing and perfect on this like 78 degree day. And it was amazing. And of course, we get the last bottle and nothing was as good as that for the rest of the time, you know, and we tried, we tried a couple of different glasses and it was like, nah, we want that Chocolina back. And so I, if you go, hey, Sam, let's go to this restaurant. They've got, uh, they've got Alamond that's really inexpensive. Well, I know I'm like, well, oh, my expectations, I know where they are. I know what Alamond should taste like. I love Alamond. I can't afford it anymore. So if you say it's inexpensive, great. But so much of that wine that I grew up drinking, I can't afford anymore. Collectors, restaurateurs, imports, uh, importers, they've all jacked the prices up so much. I just gave up on that. It's too stressful. So I just go in and, and what do you have that's great under $100? That's what I want to drink because if, if it's great, 
that'll so exceed my expectations, whereas Alamon better meet my expectations. Is there a wine region style that you gravitate towards? You know, everybody has one. You've mentioned a few different ones, so I can't really pinpoint what yours is. But, you know, everybody, whether they're going through exams or when they first get into wine and everything, like there is just that one region that just like that's their favorite. Like it's just it blew their mind or whatever. And, and they've always stuck with it. Do you have one of those? No, I have aha moment lines. I've, there was this period of time when I was at Le Marchand this friend that just had more money than he knew what to do with and just would come in on a Wednesday afternoon at like 3.30 and spend $1,800. So what would have been $3,600 at a restaurant on 10 bottles of wine, open all of them at the bar and look at us and go, well, I can't drink this all on my own. <laughs> You're like, okay, I'm going to try some of that uh, uh, Raveno and then let's taste it next to Dovisa. And then we've got Lafon, And then, ooh, let's try the O2 Salon. And, oh, did you get the the Remnis uh, from Baresh? Okay, yeah, let's... And, like, that was just a Wednesday. And so I did that long enough. Then I started to realize, like, okay, I like a particular... I don't want to say style of wine, but I, I, I look for something that's leaner, higher in acidity, and refreshing. And I gravitate towards that almost always. And I've I've now gotten to the point where I'll drink red wine if it's if it's there. If I'm home cooking and we're making a steak, I'll have a bottle of white wine opened and I'll drink white wine with my steak. And it pairs, you know, I'm not drinking Merlot with white fish kind of thing. It no, it totally pairs, but I, I'm like in a weird phase where white, where red wine does, does not, it doesn't hold an intrigue to me like it, it had in the past. Champagne is, I mean, I guess if we were going to talk about a region, that's, that's probably what I would gravitate towards most with everything all day, every day. Um, it's just not feasible and realistic. Uh, the Anjou right now is making some fantastic red and, or you know, rather white and red wines. Some of the reds are superb from there. Chocolinas are really, really fun. Vino Verdes are really, really fun. I just want light, refreshing. I don't want to have to over-intellectualize it. Is there a region or something that you're excited about looking or focusing at in the future, you know, whether it's for the wine club or your personal interests, like something that you just haven't really spent a lot of time on before and now you're kind of looking at like oh that's that's pretty cool what's going on over there yeah over the summer i was up in the san inez area went into a couple of different wineries that i just thought last time i tried these they were homogenous and and tasted too much like you know that the there's kind of been that that shift where i felt like that when you'd go and taste wines 10 years ago from the Santa Rita Hills, everything tasted the same. So it was this idea of terroir. And then you had this idea of terroir. Everything had to speak of its terroir. And then you had the idea that, well, the fingerprint of the winemaker matters in how wine's being made, because that is part of the winemaking processes. Who's making it? I really saw that in in the San Inez Valley. I, I got to taste with five or four or five different producers, all of whom I thought in the past, like, these are good workhorse wines. And all of a sudden they had all this definition and all of this nuance and where I thought, oh, yeah, this is a wine that's being made by these guys. And this is a wine, but it's from the same vineyard or it's from the same area. And it has similarities, but then it's starkly different. And I was super, super impressed. Are there any underrated or lesser known wine regions, grape varietals that you believe deserve more recognition than what they get right now? Right off the bat, Jurançon, Cahors. I think Cahors is 
is so rapidly evolving in the best way possible. And you are now finding producers that are making those Van de Swaff wines and they're isolating parcels with different soil types. And you can have four different bottles from them. They're all Malbec and it's all nuanced and unique. I think Malbec is a great variety, can be incredibly delicious and juicy and fun if it's made the right way. I think it can also be very serious too. I'm also opening up to exploring like more South American wines. I think that's kind of the last frontier for us as, you know, American wine drinkers or even worldwide drinkers that it started out with the big plonk and the homogenous stuff and the Argentinian Malbec and all that. And then you have winemakers that get priced out of every other region in the world. And so they go down into South America and start making incredible wines that maybe have they have five hectare. You know, you're you're just waiting for the importer to come in and find them and bring them back up and using unique varieties to the area, indigenous varieties. I think that that's always really interesting. I don't want to drink another Chardonnay necessarily from Argentina, but or, you know, anywhere from South America. But um, was it Pies Pays, the the grape variety that seems to do very well down there? P-A-I-S. I never remember how to pronounce it. Like, that's pretty interesting. I don't need to love it, but I I want to yeah, just continue to broaden this my scope. And I'm I'm also kind of always interested right now in wines that are of a certain price point. And which I know sounds silly and counter, but at the same time, I'm, I, I think, yeah, I just, I want to try this $25 bottle of wine because if it's really good, it's going to exceed my expectations. I just, I, w- I want to be blown away. I find that I'm more blown away more often by a $25 bottle of wine than I am by a $150 bottle of wine. What do you think is the next wine region to explode that like people should know about, but they don't? So like we've had people say stuff in Mexico, you know, because it's kind of like the Wild West. They don't really have any like strict wine law. Michigan has been a place that people have mentioned too with some cool stuff that they're doing up there. But is there anything that is a wine region, but people just don't really know about it or dismiss it that you can kind of see like, yeah, in the next five to 10 years, like that's going to be a thing. I'm loath to say that because it just means the price will skyrocket. I wouldn't know how to answer that because I just I don't think that way. I want a, a region to get recognized, but I don't want it to necessarily explode because I think you then you lose the culture. It becomes a commodity. It's not a cultural thing. And if you never taste wines from the Savoie, those wines will still get made. And people will still enjoy them, and they don't need to be four hundred dollars a bottle. But the quality's there. You know, they're delicious. You know, it happened with the Jura. It happened with Beaujolais. Everyone's like, oh, Beaujolais is going to be this new great area. And I came in for Beaujolais sometimes. It's too fucking expensive. It's like, how did that happen? How did we get to this point? Beaujolais was supposed to be this light, juicy, fun thing. Now it's all serious. And uh, man, that sucks. That's a bummer. It's too singular. It's And it's trying to find what's that next thing that I can be on the forefront of and collect and buy all for myself and then elevate this one producer to be above everybody else. And like, nah, fuck that. What's next for you professionally? What else you got going on with the wine club or anything else on the horizon? I've actually started to have uh, uh, some consulting gigs that just keep falling in my lap. I didn't necessarily think I'd get back into that kind of thing, but it's been really, really fun. At this point, it's largely coming in and doing triage on programs. Um, I just got to build one for a restaurant in LA called Yongbon, East LA, and kind of this Korean... Southern Californian mashup that as cliche as you might think that sounds, the food is 
absolutely incredible. Like I'm blown away by everything that I've had. And they let me put together a list of all these gems under a hundred dollars. So the entire list is under a hundred bucks. Yeah, that's been, um, that's been really cool. And then I have an import license. It's an excuse to travel, import, start bringing in some, uh, you know, maybe some wines that are exclusive to the wine club that we just, you know, Hey, no one's ever heard of this region. No one's ever. And I have a platform. I'm not the importer that's then trying to get you as a buyer to sell this wine. I can be the importer that turns around and says, this is really, really good and it's affordable and you should drink as much of it as humanly possible. So this next question comes from the previous guest on the podcast, uh, Stephanie Webster. She's the owner of The Rind, which is a cheese shop uh, in Oakley Wines and The Bloom Room in Cincinnati, Ohio. She left behind a question for you. What cheese is in your cheese drawer at home right now? I don't know if this makes me basic, but I love Havarti with dill in it. I could eat that by like the handful and just, it is my jam. I am actually rather intimidated by cheese and because I, I don't have a good uh, cheesemonger in this area. And there's, there's a couple of really great ones in LA, but from, for where I go, it's just so out of the way. And I never think about it until I'm at home. The past three times that I have bought cheese that I've been really excited about from just, you know, whole foods or something, it's been bad. I've given up. I can't, I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore. This is dumb. Havarti dill with dill in it. It's like solid go-to cheese. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? Can be anything. Do you have a poem that resonated with you at some point in your life that still sticks with you to this day? Next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, is it possible to have a wine program based off only wine in your city area? And if so, would it be successful? Absolutely not. That's a horrible fucking idea. The only reason is that whenever, you know, there's this idea of a hyper local food scene and all of that. Somebody asked Thomas Keller, couldn't you just be more local? Couldn't you just have more local stuff? And he bristled at that. He's like, where the hell am I going to get lobster then? Do you want to drink coffee? Where am I going to get coffee? You know, if if I'm hyper local, we lose out on so many things. Now, then you have guys like Rene Rosetsky at Noma going, no, 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 we're going to go just hyper-local. And, you know, I think that that's so specialized and, and, and such a niche thing. And it's so difficult to pull off. Noma's interesting. I don't know if I want to eat mold though. You know, I don't like, I don't know if I need to eat ants. I don't know if I'd go to that restaurant because I'd think, why, why did they pigeonhole themselves? And, and I would only go because it would be a, like, it would be an attraction, right? You just go to like, check it out to see, is there viability for long term? I don't know if there is. Chef Walter, he got on the list for this quail, some of the hardest quail to get in all in the entire country. And if you get on the list, whenever he calls you and tells you that he has quail, you have to take it. And if you're like, nah, man, we're not doing quail this week, you get bumped off and you have to wait on this wait list. He supplies to three Michelin starred restaurants. He's, you know, whatever. Well, that's, you know, Sonoma Napa. Walter Mansky also goes to the Santa Monica farmer's market and selects local. And so then what's the idea of local and even within your city range? And and then you're going to tell me that I sit down at your restaurant and you don't have any bubbly or you don't have any champagne or you only have this style of wine. It's not really hospitality. I wouldn't. Last set of questions here. We ask these everybody who comes on the podcast. So nice compare and contrast all the episodes for the listener. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your career thus far when you look back on it? I wouldn't be able to say that it would just be one person because Stucky laid this foundation for me about hospitality. 
Melissa Kojakian and Walter and Marge Mansky gave me a platform to then utilize what I'd learned. I couldn't have done Republic without Frosca, but I also, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Republic. Those two experiences were defined me uh, professionally and I am where I am today because of, of those opportunities I was afforded. What is your desert island wine? <laughs> Krug. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. So I know you're not actively working in restaurants, but you're doing some consulting. So scenario I usually give is person gets trapped at the airport, stuck overnight, flight canceled. They reach out to you. Hey, like, where should I go eat? You kind of point them in this direction. There's a restaurant in LA that is kind of under the radar. It's called Subaki. And it's this like Japanese street food or something like that. Has one of the most incredible Caesar salads I've ever had in my life. It's next to a sake bar called Ototo. And Ototo, I think, just got recognized, maybe James Beard Award or something like that. But between the food and the sake program, it's one of the most mind-blowing experiences I've ever had. First time I went in, I sat down and said to the server, you know, not the wine director, not the manager. I said to the server, hey, I don't ever drink sake, but I'm a big wine drinker, but I want to drink some tonight. And he said, okay, well, what kind of wine do you typically drink? Which I love that question. That's that's my question. And I was like, uh, I'm kind of in the mood for a Chablis. And he was like, great, I'll be right back. And he brought back three tastes of three sakes that all had characteristics of Chablis in them. And it was like, this is magical. And I was thrilled at the idea that I was experiencing something that I knew nothing about and I was getting schooled on it. And that was so cool to feel like I'm not an expert, right? To feel like I don't know what I'm talking about. Everything is in their hands. And I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm along for the ride. And, you know, at that point, I'm like, whatever you think I should eat, drink, you just send, send all of it out. So I feel like Subaki is, yeah, it's, it's under the radar. You drive by it, you'd miss it. You have to have that like in your GPS to know where you're going because you just totally miss the restaurant. It's super tiny, compact. You almost feel like you're in New York. That's great. Obviously, I love, uh, I love Republic. I love Bell's. Everyone, I mean, Bell's has a Michelin star, so it's worth the drive. You know, they're, they're, and they're all friends of mine and I love them. It's not to say that I don't think those spots are incredible, but everyone knows. But like, yeah, Subaki is kind of one of those hidden gems that I think is just out of this world delicious. Bucket list travel destination and bucket list restaurant. So a place you have not visited yet, you still want to travel to, and then a restaurant you have not dined at, but you still want to get to. I really want to go to Japan. That is a huge place. I think culturally for me, they are, I love the culture. I love how they place, what they place value in kind of that minimalist harmony and working with nature. And, and I'd love to get more into sake. I'd love to go to the breweries and, and experience that. And then I need to find the cookbook because I can't remember the name. Uh, and then actually in Japan, um, I want to go to uh, a restaurant called Monk, which is this uh, pizza restaurant. I like randomly found the cookbook, ordered it because it, just the pages I saw were so beautiful. He's like, he, he, they, I think uh, Netflix actually has them. They have an episode and I was so excited because I thought, ooh, another look at this restaurant. And it goes through his whole ethos and it's just... Man, it's so zened out and so cool. I've I've actually mentioned it now to a few other people, and it's like everyone's like, "Oh yeah, we yeah we really want to go to Monk. Monk just looks absolutely incredible." And like, who would have ever thought? I really want to go to Japan to eat some pizza, but apparently, pizza out there, of course, is like really really good. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you were working? 
I'm taking a section at Frosca and I'm at what Bobby would refer to as top of the key. So I have tables 10, 19, 20, 21, and 22. 19 through 22 are all two tops. And then I have this round table that can fit up to six people. And we get this couple that comes in and he's like a record producer or something. He looks a little bit older than he actually is. You know, he's lived life. He's done, he's done some drugs, you know, he's seen some shit and he's wearing like leather that no one looks good in, but he's trying to look like he's way younger than he actually is. And seated next to him is this woman who's definitely seen some shit and definitely dumped some drugs. You know, she looks significantly older than she should. And you clearly get the idea that this is an affair. In the restaurant industry, you experience that a lot. And I'm not going to say which restaurants, but we would have times where guests would come in with their girlfriend. And then three days later, they'd come in with their whole family. And you're just like, don't say welcome back. It's their thing. So anyways, clearly they were having an affair. They're both in their 60s. And she's also wearing leather and like a leather skirt that's way too short. You know, like, don't don't dress that way. And when I walk up, it's weird because he's sitting and she's on his right and his hand, like his elbow, he's kind of sitting like this. He's slouched, right? And he's holding the menu with his left hand and he's clearly not left-handed. And I'm like, that's weird. And as he's talking and he's, he's asking me questions about the menu and he forgets himself and he lifts his hand, his right hand up. And as he does that, I see a metal bracelet with a chain going down underneath the table. And as he lifts his hands up, his date's butt just shifts and she winces. And I was like, oh my God, what is going on? And I had to like maintain composure at this, like, I don't even know what that was. And then of course, what do you do in the restaurant industry? You tell everybody else in the restaurant, like go by table 12. You got to see this. This guy has a chain going down it, you know? And we then eventually saw it went down into her skirt. And then if she had to go up and go to the bathroom, they'd have to like unhook each other and she'd go and then come back and they'd hook down and he ate with his left hand the whole time. And so I don't know what was going on there, but this, you know, this is at Frosca. It's a white tablecloth restaurant where, you know, you're getting multi-courses. The whole thing just was absurd. So yeah, that's, that's probably the most, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen happen that, you know, haunts me to this day. Food or drink guilty pleasure. Is there anything... Fast food, candy, whatever, that's unhealthy, but you know, you just can't help yourself. Yeah, it's probably like fast food. Commu- I feel like I've been driving a lot more. And then I just get these cravings. Like I just want fat and like garbage in my body. Like I'll even go to McDonald's, which I'm just like the shame, you know, like I don't, I just don't, no one look at me while I eat this, but it's so good. Next question is wine recommendations. So we broke this into four categories. So it's zero to $20 a bottle, zero to 50 zero to a hundred and then over a hundred, no limit. If you have out of the first three categories, three that are under $20, they can fit within those slots, obviously. So this is kind of geared towards people that are interested in wine. They don't really know what to get. They kind of get overwhelmed if they're at the grocery store, too many bottles on the shelves. What should they kind of look for? What should they be open to trying? So first one, zero to 20. So what I want to do though with this is actually, I'm going to shift the answer a little bit and actually talk about regions. What I find with that is that depending upon where you are, then you think, well, I don't, I can't find that anywhere. But regions are a lot easier to isolate. I think for uh, the zero to 20, I think like Vino Verde is a, uh, a really, really great category. I think that Muscadet is a fantastic category. You know, those are both super bright and mineral. If I needed a red, then I would go Cahors. 
as well. I think that those just those, those and you know you'll you'll get freaked out by the idea that Cahors can have Malbec and Merlot blended in, but they taste like uh, baby Bordeaux, and it's just the so pleasurable, so much fun to drink. Chianti Classico is like if if I'm going to a dinner party and I don't know what they're cooking. Chianti is my my jam. It goes with fish. It goes with meat. It's just, it's perfect. Bordeaux from the right bank is a superior option in that price range. I'll list one producer, Chateau du Sal, which is from Palmerol. Um, largest Palmerol producer, but it means they like farm 45 hectare. It's not that big. Merlot based and so delightful and delicious. And you're drinking Palmerol, but right bank Bordeaux for me, Let's see for a white, for a white, I'd probably go Savoie. Some super, super fun. And that, that really is that zero to 50. The Savoie has a huge range and it's um, totally underrated. Zero to a hundred. I mean, white burgundy. Uh, I think you can still find some, some great deals. Chablis. So let's just say Chablis. Barolo. Probably uh, Samir or some, you know, Samir, Samir Rouge. I think you can find some pretty, pretty amazing wines in that, in that price point. They're super fun. Over a hundred, no real limit. Champagne, champagne for days, all the champagne that you can drink. Premier Cru, Grand Cru, Burgundy. What is one book focused on beverage that you think everybody should read? Yeah, the World Atlas of Wine, I think, is a, a great, broad... We tend to think of wine. People, I think that, that everyone gets lost in the idea of lo- knowing the micro. It's like knowing your producer, knowing your Grand Cru's, all of that. When in the reality, what we want to we want to be better about is the macro, because the macro allows you to contextualize Napa versus Bordeaux. The allows you to contextualize Sonoma Coast Pinot with parts of Burgundy, and then when you see them on a map and the physicality of the Loire Valley, with starting you know in Muscadet, and then you move through hitting Anjou, eventually to Vouvray, where Sancerre is on the map in relation to the rest of the Loire Valley. With If you have a great vintage in the Loire Valley, it doesn't necessarily mean that Sancerre is going to have that same great vintage. Chablis and Sancerre are actually pretty close. And actually, the southern tip of Champagne, Chablis and Sancerre are pretty close. And a great vintage in Chablis is not a great vintage in Burgundy. And so when you kind of see all of that in relation, I just think it's so helpful and, and simplifies a lot of the complication. And then... Once you've simplified that and the worldview, I think that's when you can start to kind of narrow in. And that book has that ability to narrow in on, well, here's Beaujolais, but here's all the crews of Beaujolais. And you start to see how it winds up. And here's Burgundy. I've studied the maps of Burgundy so much. It's, you know, I feel like I could, uh, and I did when I finally went there, I was like, ooh, that's close on Jacques. And ooh, that's this and that's this, you know, because I had just, and, and it was so great. Had I not looked at that map, though, and just read about the vineyards, I would have had no idea where they were. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. If you were, is there a moment, episode, scene that still stands out to you? If you weren't, is there anybody else who was on TV, whether they were a culinary you know, cooking show like an Emerald or a Julia Child or even like a travel show or anything that you kind of just gravitated towards when you were you know, working in restaurants and everything? I cried the day that Anthony Bourdain died. I like burst into tears when I found out that he had died. He felt like a friend. I have never felt that way about any other celebrity or personality, but it it hit home hard. I read the oral biography of him and it was really heartbreaking because you had this man that I 
held up to kind of this perfect standard. And then you start to see that, oh, he's just human. However, when he made, which I know that even this is kind of steeped in controversy, but I think the core of what he said was so true. When he said that he talked to Asia and... I can't remember the other woman that had come out against Harvey Weinstein. And he said, you know, I sat down and listened and I walked away a little less stupid. And that that quote so resonated with me about this idea that I just want to be a little less stupid today than I was yesterday. I don't need to come out and, and say that I know everything or that I understand what you're going through or whatever. But if I listen, then I can be a little less stupid today than I was yesterday. And that just that totally got to me. I have a daughter obviously that whole thing that happened that was that hit close to home you know with just guys because i have a daughter and and even with every every aspect of my life i think i just want to be a little less stupid where can people find you social media website plug everything yeah uh wednesnightwineclub.com wednesnightwineclub handle on instagram you know just at wednesnightwineclub you can email me sam at wednesnightwineclub.com if you have any questions my personal instagram handle is s Rethmeyer, that's S-R-E-T-H-M-E-I-E-R. Then YouTube, if you YouTube Wednesday Night Wine Club, uh, I have a channel that you can access all the videos and I might bring it back, but I had a, I had like a series where I, I ruined things for you. Like I ruined wine. Um, I kind of ruined Ron Bauer. I went after Ron Bauer. I totally was like, fuck Ron Bauer. This is bullshit. And here's why. And here's what you can drink that's better. So I had some fun, you know, fun, weird side things. And then there's some more stuff that's like purely educational. And I, I want to develop that more uh, moving forward. I'm not on Twitter or X, whatever the hell it's I called. I just can't now. do Facebook anymore. I just, it's not my, everyone thinks I'm weird, but I just, you might see it, but I have no idea how to log in anymore. No, this is awesome. I really appreciate your time. Uh, appreciate you coming back on and, and finishing and going through everything. It's cool to talk with people that have different perspectives in the wine industry. Uh, so looking forward to, I think next year we'll probably do some wine clubs. We, we haven't, we've been just kind of hanging around, but seeing kind of what's out there and everything like that. And they all feel when you look at so much stuff, a lot of it starts to like blur together. And, and the thing that's cool about yours is, is it's just different. It's more light. It's, stuff that you can find that's, you know, under a price point too as well. You know, or I mean everybody revolves around a price point. They have tiers and stuff. But but yeah, it's just different and that's kind of, you know, what we're all about. It's finding just people that are doing cool stuff that, you know, is a little bit unique, a little bit unorthodox or, you know, just out somebody's thinking outside the box compared to everybody else. So resharing stuff you got going on through Instagram, coming back on to plug something that you're working on for 15 minutes, whatever. Always an open invitation. Yeah. Otherwise, stay in touch and hopefully uh, we'll see you sometime whenever we're out in LA. Thank you so much for this. This is super fun. Big thanks again to Sam for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his day to come on and chat about his career and wine and Wednesday Night Wine Club, how he got into it, what he's got going on with it now, where he thinks it's kind of headed, all that stuff. We recorded this over basically two days, so it was cool to just kind of be able to really do a big, lengthy, deep dive and not really feel like we had any kind of limits or time constraints or anything like that. So that's always cool when you just kind of blow through your time barrier and it's like, yeah, we'll just finish this some other time and stitch it all together. And and really happy with how this came out. It was awesome conversation. It was great to just chat about wine and just kind of Sam's approach to hospitality and how some ideas he 
kind of has that are similar to what other people have mentioned, but also there's some stuff that, you know, we've never really heard on the podcast or never really thought of too, as well with the approach to not just hospitality, but wine. And, you know, there's a lot of people that say they want to break down the barrier of the stuffiness of wine and, and kind of that white glove mentality, but less common is kind of what Sam was mentioning too, about how, what exactly is hospitality and how somebody defines that and what kind of the goal should be if you're in this kind of world too, as well, and on the floor as a sommelier and, and working and everything like that and then it's okay to shift and to leave that world and there's different people there's you know people that are great at exams and stuff like that and are in the Somalia community and there's people that love being on the floor and that's all they want to be you know you have a master som like bobby stuckey who's currently you know on the floor restaurant owner still works the floor and you have people that you know don't want to be on the floor anymore for various reasons they have a family shifts whatever so you kind of get this all-encompassing group and you get to pull these different ideas from different people that we have on and it's just kind of cool to piece all that stuff together um, as you kind of go through all the episodes with all the sommeliers and wine professionals and stuff like that. So again, can't thank Sam enough for coming back on, you know, over that course of the two days and everything like that and just kind of doing this. So you can, again, follow him on Instagram at S. Rethmeyer and then also at Wednesday Night Wine Club. You can sign up for the wine club. You can either use the link tree. Uh, you can go to their website too as well. Uh, it'll get you there. They also have a YouTube channel. Um, so you can watch all the videos that he's done too. They've uploaded all that stuff to the Wednesday Night Wine Club YouTube channel. Follow us on Instagram too as well at Spoon Mob. Check out our website, SpoonMob.com. And then you can also check out our YouTube channel, which is just Spoon Mob. Appreciate everybody who's been listening. Uh, continue to write in questions, comments, feedback. I think I'm going to do a, a little bit of a bonus episode as we kind of close out the year here, do a mailbag uh, episode. we got a bunch of questions and stuff that just kind of have flown in over the course of the year. And some of it we haven't been able to really incorporate into an episode. Some is stuff that gets answered naturally. Some, you know, I've had requests about answering certain questions that we've asked people myself. So I'm going to piece all that kind of together and then we'll release that as an episode, just kind of like a little bonus thing. That could be a 30 minute episode. It could be two and a half hours. I have no idea. Uh, be prepared for that one. It could go all sorts of different ways. It just kind of depends on the day, I think, with that one. But I'm working on putting all the questions together and we're going to blow through a bunch of those uh, for everybody that's wrote in stuff. That's like, hey, you said, you know, if I write in, it might make it on a new episode, but I never heard from them. It's like, well, because we have haven't been able to find it into an episode or fit it into kind of the right guest or anything like that. So, but we will answer your questions. Um, so if you've written one in and you haven't heard it mentioned on an episode before, it's coming and we're going to clear a bunch of that stuff out. So appreciate everybody who's been writing that stuff in. Continue to do so as you think of things. It's always cool to get the engagement and see people kind of write in different things that maybe we haven't thought of or, or stuff that we've asked, but it's asked in a different way so you can get a, kind of a different answer. So continue to do so. Appreciate everybody who's been able to participate and looking forward to everybody participating even more as we continue to roll out new episodes. But that's it for this week. Appreciate everybody who's been listening. Continue to help spread the word. If you're new here, welcome. Been here for a while. Thank you for your continued support. We hope you guys check out our next episode and that will be next week on Thursday. So until then, we will talk to you guys later.